Welcome to episode 37 of GBW Podcast. My name is Josh. I'm going to buy a used car off you now for sure. <laughs> My name is Josh, and with me as always is Chris. Hey. <laughs> and for tonight's episode... If you don't listen to this episode, I club a baby seal. I do it because I'm crazy. You totally sounded like a, a used car I know, salesman. man. I know. I That's know. pretty wicked. Okay, I just need to calm down. <laughs> Okay, so for tonight's episode, we're going to talk about one of our idols, Mm -hmm. and that is Roger Corman. Hells yeah. And Roger Corman has had a huge influence on pretty much everybody. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So um, we'll learn all about Roger later on in the episode. But um, first of all, as usual, we're going to talk about what we've been watching over the last uh, three weeks. Yeah. So uh, (laughs) buckle up. (laughs) It's been a long time. And here we go. (laughs) Jesus. What did, we, what did you do before we started recording? I had a sip of my pear cider. I, I thought you were like, you went in the bathroom. I was like, did he shoot up while he was in there or something? Because <laughs> no. he's very rambunctious. I just got excited talking about Danzig, as I always do. <laughs> and then talking about Keith David and... Uh, <laughs> ass to ass? Uh, can we talk about him a lot, man? Well, you know, because Keith David's awesome, but... Tell the story about how you're hoping they're not tracking your your internet. I don't know if I should talk about this. Just do it. Okay. I was um after after whatever episode that I don't know why Keith David he comes up all the time, but I remember one time we were talking about the ass to ass discussion in <laughs> Requiem for a Dream. Anyway, I was I started second guessing myself whether or not he's actually the one that said ass to ass. So I spent like an hour on like YouTube, like typing in <laughs> Keith, Keith, David, Keith David S. S. <laughs> They're totally, I can't even talk. They're totally gonna hunt you down talk. now. Your internet service <laughs> provider is gonna be like, "Why is this guy got something about, about a big black man and ass the ass? What's going on?" <laughs> oh my god, we're being so unprofessional right now. <laughs> okay, okay. So that, anyway. Chill out. Anyway, no. see now I'm all hyped up again, man. R- Thinking of keep David as ass. <laughs> Don't go tell him anyway, normal people. As it that. turns out, I'm just not sure that he uttered the line, but I clearly remember ass to ass like that, right? But it was actually this weird little guy that did it. But anyway, I gotta watch Requiem for a Dream again. It's like clearly. this little guy. It's like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. He just rides around on Keith David's back, <laughs> or like the guy in Doctor Moreau. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I need to. I don't know. But that's one of those like one time movies. Like I, I couldn't watch that. I movie. just don't know if I want to watch it again. But it's so depressing. It is, but I kind of need to know the answer. So um, I would do a call out to our listeners if anyone knows if he says ask to ask. If you could us. research it and then email Josh the, <laughs> the, the actual video clip and yeah. make sure that the subject line is Keith David asked to ask, so his internet <laughs> service provider will be like more wary of him. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Let, anyway, let's let's talk about what we watched. Okay. Let's get serious here. All right. Okay. Who's going first? Well, why don't we go back and forth? Okay. So you go first. Okay. Well, first I'm just gonna knock off a couple that you've actually talked about before. I think last episode. Okay. But I just checked them both out, so I thought I'd mention them. So one was the blackout from 2009. I Ugh. think you mentioned this. Yeah, yeah. I know you didn't like it. No. So this is a directed by Robert David Sanders, and this was one of your. This was a. It was Dollarama. one of my Dollarama yeah, specials. Okay. Yeah. So, 
I kind of like this movie. So the premise is there's a blackout, duh. And um, there's um, these monsters that come out for... It's kind of unexplained. I think they, they come They come from, down on a meteor. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And uh, these they, these people are just trapped in this apartment building with these monsters. Now, I really like... Um, I really like cre- like man in a suit movies, and that's what this was. So, and I thought the creatures were kind of cool. Now, I've I've done some looking on the internet after watching this, and there's quite across the board hatred for this movie. <laughs> but I kind of like liked it. I I don't know. For me, like I I'm pretty forgiving with movies, especially like low budget movies. Um, and it's you know the the one thing I'm not forgiving of is boredom. Like if I get bored, I can't deal with it. But I didn't. I was I was pretty entertained throughout this movie, and yeah, the acting wasn't wasn't very good and and all that. But I I thought it was pretty. I thought the pacing was pretty well done, and I, I liked the creatures. So I don't know. I thought it was all right. I, I'm surprised you liked it with those kid actors because those kid actors were brutal. Yeah, well, one of them didn't last very long, and the other one she was just sort of there. But yeah, I mean, it had some stupid stuff, and the CG was terrible. But um. I don't know. I thought overall for a, for a movie where I've never heard of the director or any of the actors, I thought it was I thought it was all right. I, I didn't hate it. I don't know where all the hate's coming from. No, I hated it. I know most people hate it, but <laughs> anyway. So if you're going to go with most people, uh, don't don't watch this. But if you're going to be like Josh, who seems to hate everything mainstream likes, but likes things that mainstream doesn't like, then yeah, I, I do kind of go against. <laughs> I go, go kind of opposite a lot of the time, and it's not intentional at all. I just uh, I don't know. I didn't. He's, I didn't. He's hate unique. One. I didn't hate this one. I, I, if you see it for two dollars, I'd say it's worth a pickup. But then again, most people don't agree. Well, you can enjoy that. You can enjoy that DVD if you want, since it was mine anyway. Thanks. Have fun. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the other one I wanted to mention was uh, Excision because yep. you brought that one up and how much you liked it last week. Yep. And um, this is a 2012 movie from Ricky Bates Jr., um, who's got a, a new movie coming out called Trash Fire that's also getting a lot of good praise. Yeah, and suburban gothic in between. Right. And this, uh, as Chris mentioned last time, uh, stars Annalyn McCord, who was, yeah, she was on 90210. And yeah. she's this, like, pretty, like, kind of hot, like, California girl type looking person. And uh, just not in this movie. Not in this movie at all. And I just, yeah, I was totally stunned by her performance. Like, yeah, like, completely against what you would expect from an actress like this. And yeah. I wish we saw more of this. I mean, and it really showed her chops. And I mean, this is probably this could be the role she's remembered for, right? Yeah. Like, do you do you see where I was coming from when I when I compared her to Bettis, Angela Bettis, in May? I did see where she you were coming from, but I didn't think the movie was. I I didn't think the movie I, was. I think May's a better movie still. And I thought but May I really was did way dig. more nutty than this chick. Yeah, yeah, she was. But at the end of this one, things get pretty frickin' nutty. Yeah, things get pretty nutty. I mean, and, it, this is, yeah, this was solid, like a yeah. really good movie. And Tracy Lords, man. Tracy Lords is pretty good. I man. liked her in this. <laughs> yeah, what's your story? You went and watched New Wave Hookers after, didn't you? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he um, did. yeah, there was actually quite a few, like, cameos I'll, in this. I'll let you in he... on a secret. He totally did go watch (laughs) (laughs) i was curious um but yeah i think you mentioned the cameos like malcolm mcdowell and john waters are in this and uh yeah this was like a really well done movie it's one of those ones where i was sitting down at like 10 o'clock at night and it's kind of unsure about it you know the cover didn't really do it for me but you know it opens up immediately with these like weird like hodorowsky dream sequence 
stuff going on right away and they're interspersed with throughout the movie and um i thought those were really cool like just just cinematically really well done and beautiful use of color and and space and really well well crafted shots and then you know when you get into the actual narrative i mean this this woman Annalyn mcclure mccord is just totally awesome like Mm -hmm. and captivating right away and um yeah, and really played the character and, and in a way that um, I thought was quite real. Like, it wasn't, like, forcing you to be sympathetic towards her. And well, no, she was just, like, kind of sarcastic yeah. and, you know, not that likable. Yeah. Because, but when you saw what was going on around her, I found it to be understandable. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. why she was like that. Plus, she had mental issues, obviously, to begin with, so. Yeah. Her but life. Yeah. Her life definitely did not help those issues <laughs> no that's for sure yeah and um yeah so as chris said yeah this is a solid solid recommend from both of us so yeah yeah just wanted to bring that up so Be thanks che- for uh i don't know if i would have watched that one so thanks you're welcome hmm. every once in a while you do like stuff i do <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while yeah <laughs> well should we talk about my next dollarama conquest oh god sure assault on wall street Oh, yeah. I was there when you bought it. Uwe Ball, 2013. <laughs> so, if you don't know who Uwe Ball is, I'm not quite Isn't sure why. Uwe Ball? Uwe Ball. <laughs> Uwe Ball, I will punch you out in a boxing ring. Oh, yeah. Or I will go on the int- on YouTube and tell everyone to fuck off that I'm I'm not making movies anymore because you didn't do my uh, Indiegogo or Kickstarter yeah. or whatever. Is that true? Yeah. he. I saw the video. So, he's retired? Well, No. He's not retired? No, he's not retired that I know of, but he did go on friggin' YouTube and post a video telling everyone that they're assholes, basically. Did you know he owns a restaurant in Vancouver? Does he? What's it called? It's called Bajos. We should go. I totally want to go. Maybe he'll be there. I totally think he might be, yeah. That'd be really cool. Go fist bump him. What up, (laughs) Bowie? What up, man? Yeah. I don't like your movies, but you're cool. (laughs) Well, anyway. (laughs) So he made... He was kind of known at the beginning for making really bad adaptation of video games. Yeah. So he like House of the Dead and Far Cry and, you know, Alone in the Dark, which is, oh my God, painful to watch. Right. But uh, this one's kind of him taking the financial crisis that was in America in the early, like 2010s or around yeah, that time. 2008, I think. Well, whatever it was. And making it into kind of a revenge movie. So it's like Dominic West plays this guy, or Dominic Purcell, sorry, not Dominic West, plays this guy who's like, everything that can go wrong, it's like falling down, like with Michael Douglas, it's like everything that can go wrong goes wrong for him, you know, his wife gets sick, they can't afford the medical bills, he loses his job, all the financial things screw him over on his investments, and he just like, ends up losing it and going for revenge at the end, and for a new ball movie, it was actually pretty good. I never thought I would say these <laughs> words in my lifetime, but I actually didn't mind it at all. It was a lot more serious at first than you expect from him. Yeah. Like the plotting was pretty, you know, like unrealistic in the sense that how, how, how much can you beat down your main character in a movie and, and have it be realistic? Let's be truthful on that. Right. But I think it's interesting that he tackled the financial crisis and actually didn't tackle it with completely tongue-in-cheek he tried to be a little bit serious about it which is not like him from his past efforts i think this is where he excels and unfortunately he keeps doing these 
goofy movies. Yeah, like, like in the name of the king. And, yeah. And, and I, 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 I have heard, like, I kind of, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us just avoid Uabal because of because of his reputation. Yeah. But I have heard that when he does do a more serious subject, the films are actually quite good. Yeah, it was pretty good. Like it gets a little ridiculous at the end when all the revenge kicks in and that. And and Dominic Purcell's like kind of a beefy macho-y looking dude. Where he's Prison Break? Is that yeah from Prison Break? Right. Okay. And but he's actually pretty good in it. Like surprisingly, I didn't think he was that bad for like basically you know playing a role that someone like seagal could play i guess right technically and uh fairly competently made too yeah because i always find his movies when they did the the video game movies especially had that hyperkinetic, badly shot action scenes yeah and, and he shies away from doing that in this movie for the most part like oh, good like the first hour of this movie is pretty drama to right. be honest like it's not the full-scale action movie i was expecting from the title in the box art yeah. and i kind of liked it it's kind of cool. good it wasn't a waste of three bucks <laughs> so let's put it that way i'm intrigued to see a ringing endorsement <laughs> i i'm intrigued to see what like he has another movie called uh heart of america which he did in like 1999 i want to think or early 2000s which is about school shooting yeah, yeah i remember that i'm kind of curious to see that because I, I I feel like he's like I I don't like it when people call him the worst director of all time because I don't particularly like his movies to be honest but I there's a lot there's people out there who are making movies a lot worse than his yeah so I I just think he's unfairly being tagged with worst director of all time oh definitely his yeah. movies are better than Ed Wood's movies and Ule Lomo. And Uli, uh, yeah, <laughs> Uli Lomo. Now there's a guy who's probably one of the worst directors of yeah. all time. Yeah, at least after the '80s, because Boogeyman was pretty good. Yeah, but oh my god, his 2000s output. Oh my god, pain. I yeah, that was that was some of the worst stuff I've ever seen. Yeah, so so it's not a ringing endorsement for Assault on Wall Street, but I did enjoy it. It has Edward Furlong, Eric Roberts, Keith David. Yeah. All in this movie. <laughs> so that makes it worthwhile right there. Right on. So pretty good. Cool. Yeah. Oh, my turn? Yeah, unless you want me to do another. Um, no, I'll talk about Lockout from 2012. Lockout? Is that with Gerard Butler? No, it's with Guy Pierce. So the reason I watched Lockout I don't is know. because this is a movie that John Carpenter recently sued Luc Besson, who produced Lockout. Okay. Um, because this apparently was too close, so close to Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. that John Carpenter sued and won a lawsuit against this movie. Oh. Basically saying that it ripped, ripped off Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. So I was so curious. I'm just like, well, I better see this and see what the hell all the hype's about. Um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of weird. Like... So this is directed by James Mather and Stephen St. Ledger. And yeah, stars Guy Pierce and Maggie Grace and uh, Lenny James from The Walking Dead. He plays Morgan on The Walking Dead. And Joseph Gilgan. I don't know much about this guy, but I know he's one of the co-stars of the upcoming Preacher TV series. Okay. Um, so yeah, so this is, it's kind of weird because it's, it opens up. And um, so what we've got is we've got like a prison um, like spaceship, basically. So it's not like 
It's not like an island or so whatever. So it's like Star Slammer. Yeah, it's like Fred a Olin it's, yeah. gem. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's a spaceship prison that's all futuristic and stuff. And okay, so so far I'm on board. Yeah. So then Maggie Grace plays the president's daughter, and she's up in the in the in the star. I almost said Star Slammer up in the prison. We'll and, call it Star Slammer. And what? And so the the premise of the prison is what happens is when prisoners go up there, they are put to sleep. So they go into like kind of like a hypersleep hibernation, yeah, state for the duration. And then of, when they wake up, an alien bursts out of their chest. No, then they wake Damn up it. and they're out of prison. Um, but she's going up there to study the effects uh, of this stasis on on the prisoners. Anyway. Uh, when she's up there, she starts interviewing one of the prisoners, and then things go awry, and she gets taken captive along with the people she's with. So then Guy Pierce, um, so a very similar opening to it, Dennis to escape from New York. He's committing a robbery, and he gets busted, and and um, there's a couple of other plot points that happen there. But anyway, same kind of idea. He's he's this like wisecracking, smarmy um convict who's hired to go up to this prison ship to rescue Maggie Grace. So, yes, some similarities, but there's also been other movies where there's a prison and someone's going in to save, yep. as we just mentioned with the aforementioned TV series Prison Break. So, now I don't know how many movies there are with convicts that are being hired to go and go in, but I was watching this and I wasn't really seeing, I wasn't going, oh my God, this is an exact copy of Escape from New York. I haven't seen Escape from LA in a long time, so I don't know about that side of it. But my understanding was that the whole kerfuffle was about Escape from New York. So anyway, that's why I checked it out. Overall, um, I thought it was a fairly decent action movie. Uh, it was a little weird taking Guy Pierce seriously as a, as a, like a wisecracking action hero. Does he have an eye patch? Hmm? Does he have an eye patch? No, no eye patch, and I'm just not used to seeing Guy Pearce in roles like this. Because that'd be plagiarism extreme if he had yeah. an eye patch. No, no eye patch. There was no like, I don't, I don't think there was any like you know thing put in him to that he was going to die if he didn't get out and all that. And uh, yeah, it was it was his his main motivation was to try and find his partner from the crime at the beginning so he could like get his money or whatever. But um, yeah, it was it was weird. Like, and, and I don't know how I feel about this whole thing because if Carpenter won a lawsuit against this movie, which didn't really, you know, I, I can see the idea, yeah, but I didn't see the, I didn't feel the whole plot was a lift of Escape. But from isn't the every movie kind of a cannibalization of a pri- previous movie? Well, that's what I mean. Like, what is this? What is this opening up? Like, if if Carpenter won this lawsuit in, in a French court, like. What does that mean? Like, does that mean, I don't know. Like, you're right. Like, every movie has, you know, like, homages to other movies, right? I mean, look at Hateful Eight. I think that's kind of an homage to uh, Cutthroat's Nine. What about Django Unchained? I mean, there's a bazillion. Look at Tarantino's career. I mean, mm-hmm. you could, I mean, so it's, it's really quite an interesting lawsuit. Now, the one thing I did notice in the opening credits that I could kind of see would piss Carpenter off is... One of the main credits says from an original idea by Luc Besson. So you didn't, he didn't need to put that there, right? (laughs) Like it could have just had the usual screenwriting credit that comes up, but no, there's this like from an original idea. So 
I could see if I was John Carpenter maybe being a little pissed at that, but yeah, it's it's just an interesting. I find the whole case really interesting, and and then so I, yeah, just after checking out the movie and just not really feeling like it was that similar, um, other than the basic premise, it was yeah interesting, but yeah, it's worth a watch anyway if you're into action movies and prison movies. I Is guess. it on Netflix? Yeah, I saw it on Netflix. Okay, because I might watch it because I dig me some prison movies. Yeah, I mean it's it's not it's a space prison, so it's not like your typical prison it's a star movie. slammer. Yeah, but um, I mean, I don't know if I'd recommend it. I mean, I think I'd recommend it if you're interested in this whole case that I've been talking about, but and if you're an Escape from New York fan, but I don't know if I'd recommend it as a action isn't, movie that you should run out and check out. Isn't that movie Soldier with Kurt Russell technically a a space prison movie? I don't remember that movie. I know what you're, I know the one you're talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, I'm trying to think if it is. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I've I've definitely seen other space prison movies too. Yeah, like Star I just Slammer. find the whole this whole story quite fascinating. And well, the the problem with that story is you're right. Like, what can of worms are we opening with this? Because everything, every form of art is cannibalizing something that came before it. No matter how original that person may think they are, there's yeah. always going to be influences that people have weaved into their work. And, you well, know, and look at how many movies Halloween have ripped off Halloween. Well, exactly. Like, and or ha- like Escape from New York or um, Precinct Thirteen is like every what well, every so, siege movie now is suable. Like, so should um, <laughs> should should the producer of Black Christmas now sue John Carpenter for using the point of view shot? Yeah. For, in Halloween at the beginning, because Black Christmas did that first, technically. Yeah. Although Black Christmas riffed that off of something else that came yeah. before it too. So. You know, you're on a very slippery slope here if you're if you're going to say that, you know, you're being basically plagiarized for ideas that have been around forever to begin with. Yeah, like I I think it's quite scary this yeah. this whole thing. I mean, yeah, I mean we could go on and on. We could have a whole episode about movies that are similar to other movies, right? But I mean yeah. and you know, you just when you're even talking about a movie, oh, it's kind of like blah blah blah, right? Like well, yeah. that's how you always like describe movies to friends and stuff. So yeah, I think it's quite quite scary, and I'm quite shocked that he won, but he did. And you know, I love John Carpenter, but it just it just seems like a weird move. And uh, so yeah, that's that's why I checked this out. So I I'd recommend this movie for that, but I don't know if I'd recommend it in general. Okay, yeah. And let's be honest, Luke was on hit or miss anyway. Yeah, he used to be so great, but who knows? His yeah. newer stuff is hit or miss, like Lucy, like yeah, I've mentioned that. in the past. I don't not, remember. I don't know when the last Luke Besson movie I saw. Not good. Lucy, not good. Yeah. La Femme Nikita, awesome. Lucy, yeah. not good. Yeah. So take take your, take your it with uh, what you think of Luke Besson, I guess. Yeah. So, but it, yeah, I didn't even know about that story, but that, yeah, not a good, not yeah. a good thing for the art world, I guess no. you could say. Um, I watched a... <laughs> So, okay, here's the story behind this. My girlfriend wanted to watch this movie because she remembers it as a kid. I wanted to watch it. Oh, God, another one of these. (laughs) I wanted to watch it because I'm fascinated now by what Disney did in the late 70s and early 80s with movies like Black Hole and Something Wicked This Way Comes and, and, you know, Midnight Madness. Dark Disney movies? Yeah, like, like I'm, I'm... 
I'm super, super like fascinated with this era of Disney movies because they were so vanilla and so family friendly and so like not willing to take risks. And then all these other movies start coming out like Black Hole, like yeah. total mind fuck of a science fiction movie <laughs> forced at kids, right? Yeah. So we watched Watcher in the Woods. Oh, with Betty Davis. Yeah, with Betty Davis from 1980. And, and the basic premise of this is a family moves to a town in England into this house where they're getting it for really cheap rent. And that's because the person who owns the house, which is Betty Davis, is living on the cottage on the property. And that's why they can get such a good deal because she, you know, she doesn't want her house to sit empty. But at the same time, she doesn't want to leave the property. Okay. So then there, there's um, the mother, father, and three three kids, two, an older daughter, a younger daughter, and a brother. And the older daughter played by uh, Holly Lynn Johnson. I think I've got oh, the name Lynn right. Lynn Holly Johnson. Lynn Holly Johnson. She kind of... I sounded really excited there. She She's well, in a Bond movie, that's why. She kind of starts seeing weird things around the house, like on the edge of the outskirts of the woods and, you know windows start cracking and stuff and she has starts having these visions of seeing this teenage girl with like a blindfold over her eyes like ghost image looking at her and at the same time betty davis's character is just like kind of ominous in the background and like warning them and stuff and the townsfolk are kind of wary of everything and it's this big convoluted story about well what is watching these this family like is what is going on is it evil force here it's got something to do with betty davis's deceased daughter you know it all kind of goes it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense let's just put it that way and it gets even more outrageously senseless in the finale (laughs) but um i'm just fascinated by this this part of disney's history it sounds scary i I did see this when i was young but i don't remember anything i just don't understand how they went from making these like movies to going on and doing stuff like, you know, like I said, Black Hole, Something Wicked This Way comes. This movie, even if you want to even stretch out your, your wings to their animated stuff, like Black Cauldron. Yeah. Like stuff like that, you know? I thought Witch Mountain movies were a little weird too. Like yeah. they're just, they're odd anomalies from a company that started making Herbie the Love Bug and Cinderella. Yeah. So I'm I'm totally fascinated with these. I remember seeing Watcher in the Woods when I was young too. Yeah. Went into this movie with not really any recollection recollection of anything. Just Betty Davis looking really old and uh, and scary with like a hood or something, right? She didn't have a hood in it. No, she no, was she, just she didn't wear like a cloak. And... No, no, she was just Betty Davis, just hanging out. She's just Betty Davis looking old and and you know <laughs> evil, I guess. Yeah, but uh, it was pretty good. I I enjoyed it. I. I I think I enjoyed it more just from the fact that I, when I was watching it, I was just trying to figure out the the what the executives at Disney were thinking. <laughs> kind of like the black hole. Kind of, but um, Lynn Holly Johnson, not the best actress in the world, got to admit in this movie. But there's some pretty striking images in this movie, like the the stuff with the girl, the ghost girl, is kind of creepy. Um, it was directed by John Huff. Yeah, he's he did actually pretty well. He's a pretty well known dude. Like he did Witch Mountain movies, like you said. He also directed Legend of Hell House, right? Which is like a really like famous, very well loved haunted house movie with Roddy McDowell. Yeah, and uh, I could see them hiring him 
for this movie based on that one because it's got kind of the same creeped out imagery. Um, he also did Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, mm-hmm. and uh, Howling Four, the Marsupials. No, uh, the New Nightmare, Ooh. which was the first one that was a f- supposed to be an official sequel to Joe Dante's The Howling because it's based on Gary Bradner, who wrote the Howling novels sequel. Nerd alert. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shut up. It was uh, Watcher in the Woods, pretty good. I'd recommend it if you're, like me, curious at just what the hell Disney was doing at the time, and it's a pretty entertaining movie. The only thing I want to mention is they've added on the DVD these this alternate ending that is so outrageously batshit crazy that you're just like what the hell are they doing here and it should i spoil this or let no, people see no. it on their own let's no, you just did, you did enough with gone girl let's just leave okay, the spoilers okay. alone let's just <laughs> let's just say that this alternate ending takes it in a new direction that i didn't see coming and makes no sense to the plot and that there's some special effects stuff that was cut out of the movie that is so like pretty pretty brilliant really in a in a really weird way and that's all i'm gonna say so is it only out on dvd it's only out on dvd okay but uh, i picked up the uh it was originally put out on dvd by anchor bay yeah but that went out of print but disney has re-released and it's easy to get okay cool like i i got mine for like eight bucks yeah, I'll, I'll probably check that out yeah check it out it's 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 actually held up pretty good and it does have its moments Nice. So I recommend Watcher in the Woods for people in our age bracket who might have seen it when they were kids. Or people who, like I said, just want to see what Disney was thinking. Or parents who want to fuck up their kids. That's Yeah, that too. <laughs> you could do like Watcher in the Woods and follow it up with uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes that Disney made because that's next on my agenda. I'm yeah, gonna... and then cap it off with the black hole. Your kid will be wrecked for the next so five So you years. cap it off with a black hole. Your kid's going to be like hiding in a garage, <laughs> curled in a ball. Shivering. <laughs> <laughs> Shivering. Shivering like being like, uh, what was the bad guy's name in Black Hole again? Hans Reinhardt. He'd be like, no, don't hurt me. <laughs> or what was the the bad robot's name? Maximilian. Uh, Maximilian. He's in the corner shivering. No, Maximilian. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Something this wicked way, wicked this way comes is next on my uh, Disney What Were They Thinking agenda. Nice. So you'll hear about that probably in the next few months. Cool. All right. Well, um, I'll talk about a... 1998 movie that I really enjoy. I've seen it a few times now um, called Devil in the Flesh. (laughs) Well, starring Rose McGowan. Oh, is this like a, um, (laughs) is it like one of those like evil chick thrillers? Yeah. I have a real thing for these, like, like kind of like single white female-y or like poison Ivy or like the crush. Okay. Yeah. Like that's okay. They're fun movies. Those like, yeah, those like, yeah, those like teenage girl. The gone Crush is crazy. fun. I watched The Crush like in the I know last you did. year yeah. and a bit, and it's it's still pretty fun. Yeah, this is this is a good one. It's it's also known as Dearly Devoted. I've never seen this one. Yeah, this is a good one, and uh, so it stars Rose McGowan, and this was, you know, kind of mid nineties Rose McGowan. So I think around maybe around Scream when Scream came out ninety five, right? Ninety six. So yeah, this is like just after Scream, before and, uh, Jawbreaker, though, right? Before Jawbreaker, okay. but I think after after Scream, after Doom Generation. I actually really dig Jawbreaker, but that's another story. What's that? I dig Jawbreaker, but that's another story. I haven't seen that. In, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever seen that. Yeah, I think I've seen that. That's pretty dark. 
But um, yeah, so this is cool. So Rose McGowan is like this, you know, there's this tragedy at the beginning and then she moves into a new town and uh, moves in with her grandmother. And, you know, it's, it's you know, because her her parents are mysteriously died. And uh, she moves in with her grandmother, and yeah, you can tell right off the bat that Rose McGowan's character is kind of a kind of a badass. But she, of course, she moves in with her like total Bible thumper grandmother, oh, of who's like abusive and just like this horrible woman. Um, so then we're just seeing, um, you know, Rose McGowan ad- adjusting to the situation and going to high school, you know, like leaving the house in the morning and changing into her like more risque clothing. Oh, that's never happened before. Yeah. And is, is being a bad girl at school. Anyway, then she starts, of course, starts obsessing over one of her teachers. Oh, who's, you know, 20 years older. Oh, than yeah. So it's just, the, it's just the tale of, of her, um, you know, sort of going after this, uh, going after this teacher. And, uh, she does her usual setups, like trying to act like he, trying to convince all his coworkers she gets like he abused her or something and no, stuff we, like that. No, it doesn't go there. It doesn't go there. It doesn't go there, but she's just, you know, really manipulative oh, and okay. you know like the the guy's like um wife or girlfriend goes away for the weekend and he's having a garage sale oh, okay. so then she shows, she up, shows like, up in like her, a like, low cut top sexy clothes yeah, and okay. like then like she's in the house and like deletes like the messages from her and anyway, I, I have a real thing for these kind of like crazy girl movies <laughs> i know you do because you like swim fan and nobody fucking likes I like swim, swim fan. fan yeah damn straight i do and i even like that movie obsessed with beyonce oh shit I you've do. just lost I a loved, lot of respect i for love me. these crazy girl movies really obsessed fatal though? attraction yeah i love them all Obsessed so, is so bad i and I, I really like rose mcgowan so did you like the temp yeah, the that's pretty Laura fun. Laura Flynn Boyle. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty that fun. Good, Tom Holland, Holland director of Child's Play. Oh, we should do a Crazy Girl episode. Oh yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I'd be down with that. Anyway, this is yeah, I, I enjoy this. The um, the the teacher guy is played by Alex MacArthur, um, and he was the star of um, William Friedkin's Rampage, which I haven't I, seen. I, I love that movie. That's yeah, he plays the the serial killer. That's actually a really good movie. And he also did a bunch of TV movies in the and I think in the nineties or two thousands called Desperado. They were like these kind of like those bandit movies. Oh yeah, okay. Um, it also stars a girl named J.C. Brandy. She was in a she's a, in a band called Lowball. I don't know if you've heard of them. One of those kind of pop poppy punk bands. Yeah, no, I don't know them. And Sherry Rose is in this. She was kind of a big deal as far as like you know people that were into scream queens in the in the time period. She was in this. She gets naked a few times. She plays uh, uh, Alex MacArthur's wife. Did but, you say this is like mid nineties? Uh, Nineteen ninety eight. Oh, okay. And there was actually a sequel as well, um, Devil in the Flesh two. Um, is Rose uh, McGowan in that? Too? No, it's that. Um, What's her name? I can't remember the woman's name. She was in a Halloween Resurrection. I think it's a, a Jodie Lynn O'Keefe. Okay. Pretty, I'm yeah. pretty sure yeah, that's, that sounds familiar. that's the actress. I haven't seen the sequel, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know so, what we should do? If we do a, like a, a, a Crazy Girls crazy girls episode, you know what movie we should totally watch if you haven't seen it? What? Malicious from 1995 oh, with, uh, with Molly Ringwald. Oh, I haven't seen it. That's the one where she's like it was it's only famous because it's the first movie where she like got topless. That's oh, yeah, I know that. That's, that's only, a crazy girl movie? Yeah, it's a crazy girl movie. Another like good a, one is Terrified with Heather Graham. Oh, we're we're totally doing oh, this one yeah. day. We're totally going to do this. Okay. <laughs> okay, so yeah, anyway, check it out. I think it's out on DVD as Devil in the Flesh. I think it came out on VHS as 
dearly devoted. So anyway, I, if you're into these kind of movies, this is a good one. Which Josh is. Yeah. <laughs> no nudity, except for Sherry Rose. Okay. Well, I watched... Uh, okay, so you know, Josh, that I'm a big 80s slasher movie aficionado. Yes. And that I like to pride myself on having seen a good majority of them. Yes. But uh, until recently when Arrow Video put it out, I'd never seen Blood Rage. Right. So this is like a... Uh, a 19, it was shot in 1983, and it didn't get officially released till 1987. And uh, it was put out actually originally called Nightmare at Shadow Woods. And it was like pretty heavily cut. So Arrow's put it out now on this uncut Blu-ray thing. And I got to tell you, man, it's pretty glorious. So do you, wait, before we get started, do you remember any release of this? Like that? I remember the Prism Home video release. Of that Nightmare thing? No, or? it was called Blood Rage. So you do you this was released at some point. It was released as Blood Rage at some point, okay. but when it was originally released it was released a, called Nightmare at Shadow Woods and it was restricted. Okay. Like it was cut. But uh I got to tell you it's not a good slasher movie. It's dated as hell, it's pretty silly, it feels tongue in cheek to me, but man I can't tell you how much fun I had watching it. Cuz it's basically about these twin brothers who like they're at a drive-in in the opening scene and they like go and spy on these people making out in their car because their mom's off making out with some guy. So they like sneak off and they go look at these other couple making out. And for some reason, the one twin convinces the other to like ax murder them in the car. Are they like children? They're twins? children. <laughs> so the one who like he ax murders them, but then he baits and switches the axe so that the innocent one goes to the asylum. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, we fast forward to when they're college age and, you know, the kids get out of the asylum and all these deaths start up again. And, you know, I'm not spoiling it for you by telling you that you know who the killer is in the first 10 minutes. Okay. But the guy who plays the killer, uh, what's his name here? Does he play both twins? He plays both twins. This Mark Soper's the actor's name. If you're like me and you have an appreciation for kind of over-the-top, campy, 80s slasher movies, this guy gives a performance totally on par with the guy in uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. Okay. Like, totally on par with that. You know, that whole garbage day and all that stuff. Like, on par. He's just so over-the-top and just, like, (laughs) I can't explain this performance. It's not a good performance, but hell if it's not a watchable performance. <laughs> and speaking of watchable performances, we've got uh, Louise Lasser here, who's known for I know her, Mary yeah. Hartman, Mary Hartman, which was like a really famous 70s TV show. She plays the mom, and it's just awesome to watch her in this because she's like, it's like watching a train wreck because she's just so great because you know she doesn't want to be in this movie when you're watching it. And her character just does this all this stupid stuff through the whole thing. Like, she gets a phone call telling her that her son has escaped from the asylum or whatever. And she just... There's a scene of her just, like, chewing on this bread bun like she's really scared and concerned. Like, just shoving the bread in her mouth in little pieces <laughs> and just chewing on it. And then, like, while everyone else in the in this apartment complex is getting murdered, she's hanging out in her house, like, drinking wine and vacuuming. And she's, like, freaking out on the phone to the doctors. And she's just in her, her own little world. Right. Just, like, having a mental breakdown. But she's it's so good. 
Wow. I gotta tell you, this is not a movie that's good because it's a good movie. Right. It's a good movie because it's just so outrageous. But it actually does have some really cool gore effects by, uh, what's the guy's name here? Ed French. Okay, yeah. He's done a lot of other movies, but this is like one of his early things, and it's got a lot of cool gore stuff in it that's been restored for this cut. And it's got uh, Ted Raimi shows up briefly. So it's an American movie. Yeah, it is. Okay. He shows up briefly selling condoms in a bathroom at the (laughs) drive-in. He's got like the coat. He opens it up. What you need? What you got? He's got all these rows of condoms in his coat. He sells to all the horny teenagers. And I don't know. It was just a lot of fun. Cool. Not a great movie, but I recommend it highly if uh, you're an 80s completist of slasher movies like I am. And I'm telling you. I'm about to tackle another one, but I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to have as much fun as I did with this one. I'm going after Fatal Games next. Right. Which is the only reason I'm really excited about this one is that the killer uses a fucking javelin <laughs> to kill people. So if you I, love 80 slasher movies, Blood Rage, for sure, yeah. grab it. Arrow did a really good job with it. I've been a little reluctant just because I don't really like twin movies. Yeah. <laughs> Can I be more specific? No. I yeah. just... Uh, yeah, movies about twins. I you just, don't like you don't like Schwarzenegger and DeVito getting down. No, I I, I kind of like the craze. I thought that was that was an okay twin movie. Twins yeah. of Evil, of course. Yeah, it's an okay twin movie. Which which uh, John Huff also directed, by the way. He did Twins of Evil. Yeah. Oh, okay. But yeah, generally speaking, especially children twins. Eesh. But but uh, maybe I'll check it out as long as they're not children for long. Well, no, the ch- the ch- they the children is literally just the opening scene at the drive-in, and then okay. from there they're like nineteen, nineteen-year-old twins, like nineteen or twenty. All yeah. right, yeah, see, I'll check it out. It's fun, cool. Okay, all right. Well, um, how many more do you have? I got one more. Okay, I've I've got a bunch more. Well, um, you want okay. me you want me to do my last one, then you can fly through yours. Um. How about I'll do one more, then you do your last one, then I'll fly through. Okay, cool. Okay, so I got kind of a bummer movie, but it was a good movie, but it's a real bummer. It's called The Seasoning House. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this one. From 2012. So this is directed by Paul Hyatt. And um, Paul Hyatt's, um, he's he's an effects guy. So he did like, uh, he's a a British movie. So he's worked with Neil Marshall quite a bit. Like the effects on The Descent. Um, he also did the effects on like Citadel and uh, some other really cool British movies. Um, and he's um, got a new movie out called Howl. But um, oh, yeah, I've heard of Howl. Yeah. But this is uh, yeah, this is a real depressing movie because this is um, it's about um, prostitution and um, basically um, what is it? Human trafficking. Um, so these women, it's set in the Balkans and um, women are um killed by soldiers or soldiers go into these towns and they're they're killing families and taking the girls um and forcing them into prostitution um so this is a really dark downer of a movie um and it focuses on this one um one girl named Angel played by Rosie Day and she's a she's deaf and she's mute and she um works in this brothel and um crawls through the crawls through the she's able to crawl through the walls she's found a way to like go through the air vents and stuff and she 
goes around and she, you know, she cleans up after like after the sex acts happen. And she also helps um, shoot up the other women in there to keep them under control. And they're all addicted to heroin, of course. Um, yeah. And it's just a, it's, it's a really dark. Sounds de- pleasant. It's super depressing. And um, isn't it supposed to be a horror movie, though? No, it's not a horror movie. Because they, they market it as a horror movie. Yeah, no, it's this is a depressing look at the life of like yeah like prostitution and and drug addiction um so like yeah this this guy named um victor owns this um own like runs this 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 place and uh it's it's basically a a whorehouse for um soldiers to go to like the the bad soldiers so um to get their rocks off um, so this Victor guy, like we're introduced to him because um, he's got a row of like new arrival girls um, in front of him. And he's like sort of talking to them about how, you know, this is your this is your new life, blah, blah, blah. And then um, just to just to prove like how powerful he is, he like um, brings one of the women over to him and he just slits her throat. So like it's a brutal dude. And um Anyway, the story progresses, um, you know, it's just sort of showing like the life here and we start to get to know this angel character. And then um, a group of soldiers show up and um, one of them is the leader of them is played by uh, Sean Pertwee and he plays Alfred on Gotham. So like in a completely different character. But in this, he's like a really... He's also in Dog Soldiers. Yeah, he's a great actor actually. But um, he um, he's like the, the bad guy in this and he's the guy that killed Angel's family. And um, his him and his group of cronies show up, and uh, basically one thing leads to another, and uh, Angel gets herself into some trouble, and um, has this group of soldiers trying to get her. And um, I'm, I'm not going to go on anymore because uh, I'll ruin the rest of the movie. But anyway, it's um, something else. I mean, uh, it's it's a dark movie. I mean, I'm used to dark movies, and. Um, I mean, I wasn't super affected by it. Not as I was. I thought I'd. I thought I'd be more more affected. But I could see. I could see someone who's just not kind of used to the stuff, like turning this on and being like absolutely horrified because it's. It doesn't really pull a lot of punches. It's pretty pretty ugly. It's a pretty ugly movie. But it's odd because I, I've seen it like at the store and everything, and they totally market it as a horror movie. Yeah. I mean, it does. There is. It does get into a kind of a thriller type situation, but yeah, it's not a horror movie. It's not monsters coming out or anything. Yeah, like that's that. weird. Okay, it's definitely like a thriller. It's like so, the, these soldiers chasing this. So, is the thriller. title of it ever explained? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you could probably find a meaning. I didn't really think too much about it. But, okay. Um, I, I'd say that's just the name of the 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 house that that these girls are living well what i i was thinking it was like by seasoning they mean preparing these girls like you know seasoning them to become high class no this is not high class no you know what i mean like you know what i mean like seasoning as in like kind of like as they go along getting more being uh, manipulated and abused more yeah you know softening up being seasoned or something you know yeah, maybe that's the analogy. I don't know. I haven't seen the movie myself, so I couldn't. Yeah, see. it's a it's a tough watch. Like, um, yeah, this is. So you're saying it's not for mainstream audience? Well, it's just yeah, and it's a really I I, I think it's a pretty. I mean, who God only knows what it's like in some of these places, but I'd say it's a pretty unflinching look at 
what this type of prostitution would look like and what a place like this would look like. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's kind of a, it's a really ugly movie. And like I said earlier, and, uh, but the performances are outstanding. Um, the, it, this angel character is just brilliantly played. And, uh, like, like we said earlier, the Sean Pertwee guy is, is, he's a great villain and he's just a great actor overall. I thought the guy who played Victor was really good as well. And, um, yeah, really well directed. And, uh, but yeah, not, not for everyone, but I, I'd recommend it for sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, my movie that I'm going to talk about We're now, both, like all bummed out now, <laughs> my movie I'm going to talk about now is also one that's not for everyone. And uh, this episode goes live on the day that it hits theaters. Okay, yeah. So uh, I happened to last week got one passes to go see The Witch Mm -hmm. early. And, uh, you know, this is like one of my... No spoilers on this one. No, no, no. This is one of my uh, most excited... Like, I've been excited about The Witch because I saw the trailer and that. And good movie. Really liked it. Not quite what I was expecting. Yeah. This is also a movie I cannot really see appealing to a mainstream audience in the sense that you and I, we're movie fans. We can handle certain things like, you know, The Witch. It's written and directed by Robert Eggers. It calls itself a New England folktale. So it's basically set in late 1700s. And it's about this. The Basically, it's got ties to the Salem Witch Trials. Right. So Salem witch trials are for me like super fascinating also. Like Oh yeah. You know, you I just don't understand like, you know, there's the religious angle to this to it. There's basically the thing about if you're a woman and you have a mind of your own, you're a witch, you're getting burnt. You know, if you if you go against the church, you're a woman or a man cuz it happened to men too. You're getting burned. You're getting tortured because you don't agree with our ideals. Right. So that kind of stuff fascinates the hell out of me. You know, and it's been abused in horror movies in the past, like Mark of the Devil and things like that. Like they've taken like kind of exploitive viewpoint of this. And, you know, there's um, that Crucible movie, which I haven't seen with Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Winona Ryder. That's supposed to be more of a serious take on the Salem Witch Trials. The Witch doesn't really dive into that stuff too much because the basic story of this movie is that it's about a family who are kind of shunned from town and live in the wilderness and they're start being visited by what we assume is a witch. Okay. And from there, just events start piling up. Things start happening, you know, mental mental strengths are broken and things like that. And it just builds towards a finale. I'm not going to say anything else more about the plot. Um, The reason I'm saying this movie is not for a mainstream audience is because it is a leisurely paced movie. Yeah. It's very slow. It is an art house movie. This isn't a movie that teenagers going to go to expecting this crazy supernatural witch movie and come out of happy. Mm, Right. You know, it's, it's, a creepy movie. It's got a, a tone to it that is just very like oppressing. Like it just kind of sits on you through the whole movie because it's just downbeat, dark, grim. It's not a pretty movie. It's shot very gray scale. Right. So it's just and it's got that droning kind of feel to it. Okay. And um it's also got all the dialogue is seventeenth century English. Right. So that's gonna be a turn off for a lot of people also. 
because you kind of have to focus a bit more on what they're saying because there are words there that are, if you're not familiar with that vernacular, it's going to probably mess with you. You're going to wonder what's going on. Like it wasn't an issue for me, but I can see it being an issue for other people. Okay. Right. And um, I just, it's the reason this movie works for me is because I walked out of that movie. There's a lot of vague kind of hints that Eggers puts into this movie I came out of that movie thinking about it instantly. I was like, okay, what did I see? What do I think I saw? And built from there. I had a discussion with my girlfriend about it after we tried to, we both gave our viewpoints on what we saw. And then that's what's great about a horror movie or any movie yeah. is when you can come out of it, drawing your own conclusions and thinking to yourself, what how does this affect me emotionally? What do I feel this movie was saying? And I, that's why it works. Like, that's why I believe it's a really good horror movie in the sense that you do have that thought for book. And I thought about this movie for like three or four days and I, uh, before I made a final decision on how much I really liked it. It was one of those kind of things, right? And that's a tricky balance, like that type of filmmaking, yeah. like... It can really work, like in Cemetery Man or yeah. Blade Runner, but um, it can also work against you. Yeah. So, um, but it sounds like this one actually can generate conversation without being frustrating. Well, it does because you know there's there's stuff in it where it is purposely kept, you know, kind of fuzzy. Yeah. Because mainstream audiences want to be spoon fed. Right. They want to know at all times what things mean, where this is going, and things like that. And this movie doesn't do that. Yeah. Like, it, it, it blazes its own path, and it says, okay, I'm not going to tell you exactly what you're seeing. I'm going to let you make your own mind up. Yeah. And that's what why I like it, because it's not a movie that's going to go out and break records. It's not a movie. It's a movie that's going to divide people. Let's just put it that way. So is it like Lynch territory where we're like not knowing what the hell happened or? Um, sort of. Okay. Sort of. I, I don't want to go too far into it because I don't want to try and right, like, of course. put any spoilers out there for anybody, right? But it sort of goes Lynchian. I've heard the movie be compared to Argento. Okay. So it's I'm not really a scholar for Gen- Argento, so I can't speak to that. I can kind of see it from what I know of his movies. Like I can yeah, see some that. of Argento's movies don't make any sense, but yeah, like I I can fine. see that. Like, but it's for a guy who's it's his first movie. Wow! Like okay. he's he hasn't made a movie in the past, and it's a risk he took making this movie. Yeah, because you know when first time filmmakers they want to make something accessible, safe, mainstream. Yeah, he didn't do that. Good, and uh, it's a very intriguing movie. It's very thought provoking, and. You know, it's going wide release, which kind of scares me because I do think we know any of the actors in it? No, it's pretty much unknowns. Wow. And um, like I know them, but I couldn't honestly okay. tell you. Like I didn't write their names down or anything, yeah. but they're, the cast is really good. Like really good. I'm not going to I don't want to discount their work. They're all convincing and they all do a good job. Great. Um, but I just I feel like this is a movie because people are unaware of what they're getting into going in. Cause I find people don't really research and look into what they're going to see in yeah. theaters. Like I had this issue with Pan's Labyrinth. I think I've talked about that in the past where I went to see Pan's Labyrinth and people weren't aware it was subtitled, weren't aware it wasn't aimed at children, 
Right. And, you know, you do some fucking research before you go to a movie, right? Like, yeah, I think that's happening with Deadpool right now, too. Yeah, like, know a little bit about <laughs> what you're getting into. Yeah. And uh, I feel like it's going to get a lot of people going to it being like, oh, this is going to be the next cool horror movie. And they're going to come out of it saying, I don't get it. Yeah. And that's why I think it's a successful movie. Cool. And uh, I also think that uh, it'll probably be one of the, the, it'll be on a lot of end of the year lists. Great for genre pictures for sure. So check it out. Check it out if you can handle slow burns that uh, will let you use your brain. Great. No jump scares. None of oh, that. No jump scares. None of that crap. Damn. So <laughs> you know, just just be aware what you're getting into. There's no cats that leap at you or anything. Yeah, no. Huh. Just just be aware what you're getting yourself into, and and you'll do fine. Great. Okay. All right. What where do we at? Uh, both an hour. <laughs> I told you this would do. Let's just zoom through yours and we'll go into the Corman. Well, I don't know if I want to zoom through mine. Um, well, then speak. Okay, we'll, we'll blaze through some of these here. Okay, so um, I started watching... Well, I started watching a couple of new series. But um, the first one I wanted to talk about is just one I just reviewed on the site called um, Delinquent Girl Boss. Delinquent yep. Girl Boss. So this is the first of the Stray Cat Rock series of movies. Yep. Um, these are, and again, this is continuing my exploration of Japanese cinema of the 60s and 70s. Um, so this is, again, directed... Japanese crime cinema. Japanese crime cinema. So this is, um, again, directed <laughs> by Yasuharu Hasebi, who also did the, um, the Retaliation and Massacre Gun, which I've already talked about on prior episodes. Um, this also stars, um, so this is a, the first big movie starring Miko Kaji and she's, um, of course known for being Lady Snowblood and being in the female convict scorpion movies. Um, but this was kind of her first big role. Now this movie was actually, um, kind of a vehicle for a Japanese singer named Akiko Wada. And, um, she's kind of, she's, she was kind of the 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 main girl in this movie so it's a girl gang movie um so the movie opens with a girl gang fight um so we've got miko kaji's gang and then this other gang and then um akiko wada plays this kind of outsider who's like swoops in at the end of the rumble and like takes uh, miko kaji and they escape together and uh she's yeah so it's kind of like about this outsider and how she helps this gang out um, but what happened throughout the, the course of the movie, and I think also in the course of of um, pop culture, is that Miko Kaji kind of stole the movie and then became a star herself. And uh, um, Akiko Wada didn't 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 she didn't pursue a film career after this. Um, and yeah, like Kaji just steals the show in this one, and uh, and um, yeah, it's just it's a pretty solid girl gang movie it's like an exploitation movie like a roger carman movie um but uh it you know it's got a lot of i found it interesting because you know i really kind of dig late 60s early 70s culture and like the whole hippie movement and psychedelic music and all that and that's all in here which i found really surprising for a japanese movie like i just never really occurs to me that like this well you're stuff- just expecting tradition yeah, right. like, you know, and that's what kind of what you're used to when you're seeing all these yeah. like, motorbikes going around and, you know, there's like a Japanese psychedelic band in, in the club and, you know, funky clothes and stuff. And, yeah, it was so it was kind of a breath of fresh air 
Um, it also stars Tatsuya Fuji, who is um my favorite part, one of my favorite parts. I I, I loved Massacre Gun wholeheartedly and uh retaliation i i liked quite a bit but this actor's been in all three and he's great and then this one he gets to play a bad guy and he's been kind of cocky in all three movies but in this one he's kind of steals the show also as as the the baddie and he's you know he's got the sunglasses and smoking and he's just cool dude and there's a really cool uh, chase sequence where he's in this dune buggy chasing this uh chasing uh water on our motorbike through the streets of tokyo of it's not tokyo it's a it's like a part a portion of tokyo and um you know there's a part where they like go into a shopping mall and they're going up and down stairs and across overpasses and it's like this dune buggy so it's totally kind of a different take on a whole chase sequence um yeah so overall i i, I dug this um you know um it's it's nothing nothing really new but um, it, it's it's new for me because I'm just not fami- that familiar with this genre. But I, I'm certainly looking forward to the other four movies in the series, and then uh, moving on to Kaji's other work. Because uh, before before I you know started getting into this stuff, the only thing I knew her from is Lady Snowblood, which is a great movie, and and its sequel. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to exploring her body of work and uh, some of these other actors as well. So yeah, it's a good it's a good one. So yeah, yeah I was looking at. Uh screenshots for this movie when i was like formatting the review to put on the site and everything yeah. and i was like this looks like a japanese switchblade sisters <laughs> totally uh, yeah uh, so all the movies in the stray cat rock series are about girl gangs and but i don't believe they're the same characters they're not interconnected no i oh, don't okay. think so uh, i guess i'll find out but i mean yeah i mean it, it, kaji stars in all of them so i can tell you right now that they're definitely not interconnected character wise but um i guess we'll see what happens because okay. i got four more of these to get through. cool yeah. and how people can get that through i don't know you know arrow foot arrow put it out in this in the stray cat rock collection but i don't know i think there's still some available but it's one of those was it like a limited run limited run oh, and okay. i don't think they're available separately but judging by this one i think it's probably worth a pickup if you're interested in this kind of cinema um but yeah i I, um it's part of that collection i i don't know if they'll like release them separately after they sell out like i think they're doing with that with the uh the black cat box with the the two black cat movies were a collection and it's sold out now and now they're putting them out separately so i don't know if they'll do the same thing but i also we've talked about this in the past too i don't know how much of a market there is for this stuff right i mean i just don't know how much interest there is you know I mean, if I've, I've been a fan of cult cinema for my whole life and I didn't, I didn't really know about these movies until recently. So it's not like I was chomping at the bit waiting for these movies to come out. Right. So true. I, there's a slight market, but it's Kaji. There's Kaji fans out there. So anyway, well, we'll see. We'll see where it goes from here. Cause I'm sure you'll report back to us on the other ones. I will. Um, so I also wrapped up, thank God, the Lake Placid oh, series. <laughs> good for you. With Lake Placid. The final chapter. Oh. Is this going to be like a cop-out, like Friday the 13th, where all of a sudden, for the next movie, they go to like the, oh, the crocodile's grave and shock it back to life? No, this felt like this has now been dead and buried, and it's gone on. You're like, for... it's been dead and buried since part one. <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting series, because I actually thought they were getting better, but this one is not. This well, is, no, this is like the... This is the worst. This of... is the... Uh, the pinnacle of bad of the series is this is the worst of the bunch for sure i didn't like the effects 
Not that the effects in the other ones. Is this a sci-fi one too? Yeah, I believe I believe it's a sci-fi one, but um, I don't know. It starts supposedly it starts Im- immediately after part three because Yancey Butler's back um, as her redneck redneck uh, as the redneck girl who um, is uh, fighting crocodiles, and um, she shows up at the very beginning, but none of the other characters from the last one are there. And then it turns out she's been hired on. So she's not no longer like hunting under the radar. She's been hired on by the like game warden to like patrol the lake for crocodiles now. And um, you know, while I liked her in part three, I found she was just quite annoying in this one. Like, you know, it was just always like action, action, action. Cut to Yancey Butler spouting off some stupid one liner. Um, I didn't like any of the other cast members uh, aside from Elizabeth Rome. She was on Law and Order. Um, she's like the main cop, but, uh, didn't like any of the kids. I didn't like, I didn't like anyone. Robert England was in this. I didn't like him either. So this, I, I really think that outside of Freddie, Robert England really isn't that. No, you know, he was good in V. He's been in so many like really junky yeah. horror movies now that I just, I can't take him seriously anymore. Mm-mm. Like V he's good in V. He's good in V. He's good as Freddy. Yeah. But after that, really, what is there? Phantom of the Opera? Yeah. Like, I can't really think of anything apart from those two roles that speak to me about Robert Englund, to be honest. Yeah. Um, um, this is uh, this was directed by Don Michael Paul, who's kind of like the, one of the kings of the direct-to-video sequels. He's He did, like, Tremors 5. He's doing the upcoming Kindergarten Cop 2. Oh, God. I just saw the poster for that. <laughs> With Dolph. Poor Dolph. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I, he used to be an actor. He was on, like, Models, Inc. or Melrose Place or one of those shows. And But, yeah, this this one is just disappointing because, you know, there's, like, you know, the the, the crocodiles are just not scary. Um, the You know, the gore is kind of lame. There's minimal boobage. Um, yeah, so I'd say, so thank God. I'm kind of really happy that I've done this series because, you know, even though I enjoyed a few of them, I found this quite quite a slog to get through yeah <laughs> so um anyway wrapping it up i mean i think my order would be uh three two one this one huh um, and if you would have seen anaconda versus lake placid that would be the bottom i guarantee <laughs> yeah, we'll save that for the anaconda series just because i don't want to watch it <laughs> yeah you don't need to watch the anaconda series yeah i think i'll pass on well i've seen the first three yeah yeah, well, maybe no. you can do the anaconda. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> anyway, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll do Lake Placid versus Anaconda one day. But I'm just, I'm, I have to move on. I have to move on from this series. You're gonna hit another series next? Well, I actually started it. Okay, what is it? <laughs> Am I well, gonna? I be... guess the seasoning house got me in the mood, so I thought I'd, I thought I'd do the Ice Spit on Your Grave remake. Oh my and its god! Sequels. <laughs> wow, we really are glutton for punishment. <laughs> So, have you seen it? I haven't. No, I haven't seen any of the I Spit on Your Graves, even the original. Okay. So, I I like the original I Spit on Your Grave. I mean, it's kind of an exploitation, uh, rape-revenge classic. And, um, I mean, brutal movie, yes. And, you know, but Camille Keaton does, has a, does a great performance. And, um, yeah, and it really, you know, I mean, it's kind of the true, the true rape-revenge type sense of a movie because they're 
you know, all the guys that do the raping and get their comeuppance and, um, in brutal ways. And, uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, it's not, it's, it's an exploitation movie, but I also think it's kind of a, I don't know, in a, in a weird way, like kind of a feminist movie. So kind of like uh, Miss 45. Yeah. I don't know if anyone, I don't know if people would agree with me on that statement, but <laughs> that's how, kind of how I felt about it. Like I didn't feel like, it, I didn't feel like it was totally exploitation. I feel like director Mears Archie was trying to say something else. Um, so anyway, this, the sequel or the, sorry, the remake, sorry, was 19, it was done in 2010. So, you know, 25 years later, 30 years later. And, um, this one stars Sarah Butler, um, playing a woman named Jennifer. And it's the same premise. She's out in the woods and she's, uh, trying to write. She's a writer. She's got a cabin, and um, these three rednecks um, come to the cabin, and um, and um, there's they've got a, a they're a person with them. They've got an intellectual disability as well, and they go to the cabin and they um, basically torment her and and end up uh, raping her and leave her for dead. And um, then she comes back and gets back with all of them in interesting ways. So it's kind of like a reverse slasher movie, um, just with this uh, revenge angle. Kind of Last House on the Lefty. Kind of like, yeah, Last House on the Lefty. I mean, people who are listening to this podcast, I'm sure you know what a rape revenge movie is, right? Yep. So, so I mean, if you're a fan of the original, I mean, this one I think stays very true to it. I don't, I wasn't sitting there all angry or anything, and I thought they did a really good job. I, I thought they didn't uh, shy away, as you would expect from them. You know, in in the year 2010, you would expect it to be toned down quite a bit, but it was not. Um, I mean, there wasn't a ton of nudity, and I didn't... The, I found the, the biggest change from the original in, in this one was um, in the original, the um, the character kind of seduces the, the rapist to, like, get her revenge, but that doesn't happen in this one. So I found that to be a, kind of an interesting change from the original. But I, I thought uh, I thought Sarah Butler did quite a good job. Um, one of the one of the bad guys is played by Rodney Eastman, who was that weird, Street. weird Joey guy in yeah. Dream Warriors. So it was interesting seeing him older. Um, He's the one who had the "How's this for a wet dream?" Yeah, in part that guy. Four. Yeah, and uh, yeah, totally unrecognizable. I was surprised it was him when I saw this. But um, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty solid remake and. Um, and yeah, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how the sequels to this are going to go. I've heard there's a law of diminishing returns on the sequels. Yeah, and I, it's kind of weird that I they did I find it's weird sequels. that they made a sequel. Yeah, two sequels. Like, that's weird. It is weird. Because that subject matter isn't exactly something that screams a part two and a part three. Well, there's been a lot of rape revenge movies, right? But it, yeah, you're right. Like, it's like... And I think Butler comes back in, in part, part three. three. Yeah. So, like, does she get raped again? Yeah, that's, like, that's just... Is that what happens? You know? Is I don't... That what I have no idea. Yeah, like, I just don't know, but... I have the um, I have the Blu-ray double feature of the original and the this remake you're talking about at home, so... It'd be interesting to see them fairly close, you know? Like, because yeah. I haven't seen the original in probably ten years. I'm, I'm not... I'm not a huge uh, fan of this subgenre, like... But there are ones that I really like. Like, I like Savage Streets with Linda Blair, but that's like for from a pure B movie exploitation standpoint. Is it a rape revenge? Though? It kind of is. It's not like Linda Blair's character isn't the one who's the victim. 
it's her sister. Oh yeah, her who's mute, like uh, her mute sister. sister. Yeah. So she takes revenge for her sister because she can't do it herself. Right. And then my absolute favorite one is Ms. Forty Five. Yeah. By Abel Ferreira, and just because that one is very, it's not pleasant to watch at first, but her revenge is makes it worth it. Yeah. And of course, Last House on the Left, even though technically that's not really a rape revenge because I don't think they actually do that act to her oh, in the yeah, movie. Oh, yeah, they do. Do they? Oh, yeah, they I, do. I can't remember. Oh, uh, yeah, they do. Never oh, mind. Oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yes. I take remind them, take that away. Yeah, that's a rough ride. I, I like Last House on the Left, though. Like, yeah, it's, it's a really, I think it's a very effective movie. It's a really interesting subgenre because I don't really... Like you I can't mean, say when you're watching them that you're entertained, and you're but you're but you're cheering for the woman, yeah. And it's it's fun seeing her get 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 her revenge. Yeah, you just have to get through the the. But yeah, like it's first it's a really part of that difficult subgenre to yeah. place. Like because I do, I you know I've seen a bunch of these movies and I do like them, but I don't know why I like them, and it, like you almost feel bad for liking them, but but they're not just they're not. I, I just don't find they're not expert. exactly a party starter, right? You can't go into a room and be like, "Hey, you've seen us spit on your grave, man." That movie's good. No, <laughs> it's but, not like one of those. But situations. it feels like there's some sort of cultural relevance. Like I don't really, I don't know if it's like. Well, a, I think it's. Um, I think a lot of it, if it's done properly, it's got that kind of feminist vibe that you're talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. Like, like it's showing that, like. I don't want to mince my words here and make myself sound like an idiot, but um, it's kind of like an empowerment thing in a way. Yeah. Because, you know, if you've had something terrible like that happen to yourself, you know, if if you can get back at the people who have done it, like, you know, it just, it's like an empowerment thing and it's like a, a therapy in a way. Or I Or like guess. a fantasy almost. Yeah. Too, like, right? Yeah. Like, like, you know, I don't want to, jump too far into this because no, I don't want to put can't. my I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. Yeah, and I and I get that. And yeah. uh but yeah, it's an interesting subgenre. So I, and I'm I'm curious about these more so because it just seems like such a uh weird time to be making these. Like I thought like I well you know, the, yeah you because, just didn't think they would make movies yeah, like this now the, and now they've made three of these. There's that girls against boys and yeah. there's other ones too and I, I just don't really understand how these are kind of making a comeback, but they are. So, um, anyway, I'm curious to see what the next two bring. What a it, weird series to pick next though. Well, it was sitting there. So <laughs> I thought, well, <laughs> here okay. we go. You know, and I also like you, I'm kind of like trying to like downsize some of my movies. So I was thinking, okay, well this could be a likely candidate for stuff that I watch once and doesn't have to be here anymore. So well, there you go. Okay. Um, okay. I got two more. One's real quick. Um, 200 motels. Um, Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa. This is a fucking weird movie, dude. And um, I, the only reason I wanted to bring this Curtis up is... It's difficult to watch. It's weird, man. It was shot on video in yeah. 1971. And it was shot in one soundstage. And I think it was done in like four days or something. There's obviously no script. It's like it's all improvised from what I can tell. Um, Zappa isn't actually in the movie as an actor. He just shows up as um, sort of in the background and in the musical sequences. He's playing music, but he's not like acting. Um, 
Ringo Starr is in the movie playing Frank Zappa, which is weird. Keith Moon is in this from The Who playing a nun. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a weird Ringo flick. Starr playing Frank Zappa. Yeah, it's weird. And yeah. like, it's kind of like, it's like it's this like subconscious analogy of what it's like to be in a band and be on the road. And you've got like weird skits. Like the the one in particular that stands out is you've got, uh, um, yeah, Keith Moon, as I said, playing this nun. And he's like got two groupies around him, one of which is played by uh, Lucy Offerall who was you know, a famous uh, Zappa groupie. She was in a band called the GTOs with Pamela DeBar, author of I'm with the band. And, you know, she's, she's like topless and in these like red underwear prancing around with this other woman and, and bring, and uh, Keith Moon's like this nun and he starts crying. And it's really weird. The one thing I did like about this movie is there was a number of musical sequences. Um, this was the, the period of when the um, when the, in the Mothers of Invention, which is Zappa's band, um, two of the members of the Turtles were in the band, and that's Howard Kalen and uh, Mark Volman. And I actually didn't realize that two of the guys, the Turtles, were all in the Mothers eventually, and and also I didn't realize that they um, did some of the songs I really dig that Zappa does, like Magic Fingers. That was probably my favorite part of the movie. So pretty cool seeing those guys because i just wouldn't have thought of the guys that do happy together no. would have ended up in zappa's band but uh, anyway it's it's, uh, it's interesting I'm, i i don't know I, I i think you have to be a pretty hardcore zappa fan to get a lot out of this but uh um yeah the musical sequences no one cool. of my favorite zappa songs is what broken hearts are for assholes <laughs> <laughs> yeah he has some good stuff he's I mean, a he's a weird cat I've, um, you know, in listening to Zappa's albums, I haven't really enjoyed his studio albums, but I do like his, like his live stuff. Um, and that's kind of, I think, I think that's kind of known. That's where he kind of shone. And, you know, because, you know, the three minute song on the album would end up being a 20 minute song on the, on the live album. So I, I don't know. This is a curiosity for sure, but it was, it's, it's a, it was a weird one. Um, the last one I want to bring up is, um, I revisited Devil's Rejects. Yep. And, um, yeah, I mean, so, so why did you revisit it? Why did I revisit I, it? I saw your tweet, so I want you to explain. Did I tweet about it? I want to, exp- I want you to explain why you decided to revisit it to people. I don't know. I thought you said you revisit it because you heard Freebird on the radio. <laughs> that's true. That's good. I forgot. <laughs> that's, that's why. Yeah, I heard Freebird on the radio and it reminded me of the last scene in this movie, which I've always thought was a really great use of music in a movie. Now, after revisiting it, I don't agree with that statement anymore. I thought it was kind of cheesy on a I second think they, watch. I think it would, they did a good, he did a good job in the opening credits using, uh, um, Midnight Rambler. Yeah. Or Midnight Rider, sorry. Midnight Rambler. No, it's Rider. Midnight Rider. The Stone Song? No. Midnight Rider by Allman Brothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I always get We're getting confused on this one. Oh, but shit. It's, it's Midnight Rider by the Allman yeah, Brothers. Yeah. yeah. I thought that he did a, he used that song pretty appropriately oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the opening credits. Yeah, okay. I, I totally remember now. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of Rob Zombie's work, but I think I'm more of a fan than I think I am. Um, uh, Devil's Rejects is his best movie yeah, that I I've seen. Anyway. Definitely agree. Like, I did enjoy this more than the first time I saw it, and it definitely is his best movie. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I don't like the Halloween movies. I think no. everyone doesn't. 
House of a Thousand Corpses, eh, I can take it or leave it. But this one I thought was pretty good, and I kind of wish he did more like this. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to see Lords of Salem yet. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. But either. 31 looks like it could has potential. Yeah, and that's another reason I wanted to revisit this because we've been talking about 31 lately. But um, yeah, I thought this. Yeah, this this is a a decent a decent flick. But again, not a very pleasant flick. I mean, uh, a lot of rough stuff goes on in this one. I, I really like Sherry Moon Zombie in this. I know you don't like her, and um, I think she's okay in this one. Yeah, it just because it just didn't feel like so. I think it's the Halloween movies that ruined it for me and the fact that she has to be in every goddamn movie he makes. That's yeah. the thing. I didn't feel like he was doing I feel the... like she hasn't blazed her own path as a career because she just gets to be put in her husband's movies all the time. Well, she doesn't need to, right? Yeah, I guess. But um, I just... The, the thing I liked about this movie is it wasn't all kinetic like his other movies. Like, it just played a little straighter. And this this was a, a kind of a fun and like the other ones, but this this one more so was kind of a fun like spot the cameo movie. You know, we had everyone from like Priscilla Barnes to like Deborah Van Valkenburg from the Warriors to E. G. Daly to P. J. Souls. Um, so there was all kinds of actors in this, and I thought it was a pretty solid chase movie. And uh, I could have, I mean, I thought the middle part um, there's the middle part that's kind of brutal in a hotel room um didn't need to go on for as long as it did but i guess it's kind of rob zombie's thing um but i think this could have been tightened up to a solid 90 minutes and it would have been a little better even but yeah i mean i i didn't hate this movie at all and uh i'm actually looking forward to watching the documentary on the dvd there's a, apparently a feature length documentary yeah, on it's it. pretty it's good quite good yeah, yeah. so let's uh, get to the topic finally finally <laughs> It's oh, happened really? to me. Oh, my God, dude. Yeah, C.C. Penison in the house. Oh, I didn't even know who did that song. Yeah, I did. Keith David told me. <laughs> Let's give Keith David some credit. He wouldn't have known who sang that song. <laughs> he wouldn't have known? Yeah, okay, so all Keith David knows is ass to ass. Roger Corman. <laughs> How did you first find out about Roger Corman? Um, I think I... From what I remember is there's two memories. And the first memory I didn't even realize it was a Roger Corman memory until later is uh, we had these bargain stores back where I, I grew up in Ontario in Canada here. And uh, they had stores called Byways, which uh, our past guest Ed Brisson and I talked about a little bit. Right. And uh, I picked up a VHS copy of this movie called The Terror with uh, Jack Nicholson. <laughs> And Boris Karloff. And, you know, I'm like really young when I see this movie. So I'm just like super excited because I'm like, oh, I'm just really not that familiar with horror movies. But this looks pretty neat because it had this hand-drawn cover of Boris Karloff looking like Boris Karloff. And, right. You know, and I took it home and didn't like it at all because, <laughs> you know, if you know the history of that movie, you, it's understandable why you might not like it. Yeah. But uh, that was the first real exposure to him that I roundabout way i didn't know but then um a few years later i was watching entertainment tonight and it was on they used to have an entertainment tonight that they played at like seven o'clock but then on the weekends they'd have one that was like on later at night like after 11 where they would like cover other kind of stories like that's where you would see a story about trauma or something like that and uh they did a, a retrospective on roger corman and it had a lot of like clips from 
all of his new world stuff. Like it had clips from this trailer from the movie Savage. It had like Death Race 2000 footage and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Attack of the Crab Monsters and stuff like that. And when you're a kid and you see this stuff, your eyes just go boo. Yeah. You're just like, whoa. So, and then I'm like, Roger Corman. Okay. I got to remember that name. And that's when I started getting into his big massive filmography that he's got yeah so that was mine how about you hands down death race 2000 yeah yeah absolutely it was one of my favorite movies as a kid and i associated the name roger corman with it because he produced it and um that's what i for years that's what i thought of i i knew that name roger corman from that from one of my favorite movies yeah hands down and i've seen that movie probably a hundred times so that's, now you've that's seen how. it an awful lot. I've seen that movie a lot. <laughs> I loved it, and um, yeah, and I think I just I think throughout the um, '90s I got into a lot of the um, stuff that was coming out from uh, uh, Concord and New Horizons, and um, a lot of the stuff that was hitting the video stores directly. I was watching all of those. Um, I think watching some of the remakes um, of some of his own movies, like wasp woman and stuff like that i got into it that way and uh you just you know if you're into b movies and cult movies you're just gonna obviously anyone's gonna develop it, it, an appreciation for roger pretty Carmen. much unavoidable because yeah. he's was responsible for like a quarter of the b movies that you were renting as a kid yeah like his name was associated with them somehow some way mm-hmm. so you know you couldn't avoid his name to begin with no like and, and then when you were watching these movies and his name kept popping up, you kind of had an idea of what you were getting yourself into Yeah, a lot of the time. Because, um, you know, I've heard interviews in the past with people like Jonathan Demme once said that uh, he, Roger Corman had three agendas in a movie and that would be like humor, action, and sex. Right. With sex being the least important, but it's nice to have it in there. Yeah. So, you know, and and you could totally see that, like, kind of mindset in a lot of the movies that he produced and made in that era. So, uh, you know, you can't avoid, you couldn't avoid his name. No way, no how. No. No. That's for sure. And it's funny, like, you know, even just, uh, like, after watching tape heads, like, watching Mo, whatever his name was, the the black uh, producer guy. Yep. You know, when he's like, you need more, you need more, more fuzz, more. tits and ass. Yeah. That's like a total like Corbin. <laughs> yeah. Totally a Corbin moment. Yeah. So Roger Corbin was born in, um, 1926. So he's almost 90 years old. Yep. Um, and he was born in Detroit, Michigan. Um, he started his career as an engineer and that's, I think that's what his dad did. Yeah. Um, he was following in, in the, fa- in his father's footsteps and then he kind of realized that, it might not be for him. Yeah, I believe he went to engineering school and got yep. his first job and was like, quit his job within a week or something. Yeah, he was like, no, this isn't yeah, for me. Like, yeah, I screwed up. <laughs> yeah. So um, he went to work at 20th Century Fox in the yep. mailroom and eventually got a job as like a script reader. Yep. And um, I guess what happened is he was reading different scripts and um, eventually ended up um, putting forward a script called The Gunfighter with Gregory Peck. And saying he liked it. So he, you know, made some changes to it and uh, they made the movie. But um, he was pretty um, disenchanted when the movie came out to find out that a lot of the changes he made, he didn't get any credit for. Like they put the stuff in, but they didn't credit him at all. So he was kind of like, fuck this. I'm going to go 
do my own thing. I don't, I'm not going to, I don't want to do this. I, I want to do my own thing. Yeah. So he started making his own movies um, with the help of his uh, brother, Gene. Um, so the first movie he made was um, in the mid 1950s called Swamp Woman. Um, I don't know a lot about, have you seen that one? I haven't seen it since, gosh, I was a really young, Beverly Garland stars in it, I believe. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember a whole heck of a lot. It was more of it was like kind of a crime, a low budget crime movie, if I recall correctly. Right, and um, he made a he made a number of other movies in that uh, time period. Um, but I, you know, like I think the the main one, you know, like me, things like Attack of the Crab Monsters yeah. and Not of This Earth, um, Creature from the Haunted Sea. Yeah, but one of the main ones that he did at that time was. Um, a uh, little shop of horrors, yeah, and a bucket of blood. Yeah, and um, both both you know sort of got his name on the map, and you know he was he was already starting to get a reputation. I think Little Shop of Horrors was shot in like two days or something. So yeah, I think the story is it was shot on three days on existing sets for another movie. Yeah, so so um, he was starting to get a reputation. He was also starting to get a stable of people around him, like uh, Jack Nicholson. He was working with quite often, and he had a regular DP and or sorry, a, a regular set decorator, and uh, I think he had a regular DP as well. Um, and, you know, starting to build like a little bit of a group around him. And, um, he was, he was also starting to direct movies for, um, American International Pictures, AIP, yeah. which was, um, yeah, I mean, again, like a lot of us cult movie fans know all about, AIP. we know the AIP logo when it pops up on that screen. Yeah, that's for sure. So, you know, after he was sort of got his chops, you know, directing these low budget movies, he started, um, feeling like he was per, uh, perfecting his craft. So he uh, decided to start doing a bunch of movies for AIP that were based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. And uh, I think he did six, six or eight Poe movies. Yeah, I'm not sure of the number. It was a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, through these, he was working quite a bit with Richard Matheson, um, who was a famous uh, author and also writer for like the twilight zone and who we've established in our past episodes wrote one of the best horror stories of all time with i am legend i am legend yeah so there were eight poe movies in total um i think vincent price starred in almost all of them i think there was one of them he didn't star in um i think it was premature burial yeah um, that was ray million he's not in that one right but he you know like follow the house of usher and, yeah, Pit and pendulum, pendulum. Um, Tales of Terror, The Raven, The Haunted Palace. So these were all movies that um, Corman was starting to get a reputation that as like an actual good director, like not just as Schlockmeister, as many have kind of referred to him. Well, and the thing is, too, is that the reason I think AIP took the risk on him to make these Poe movies, because they were kind of fairly elaborate for like a low budget yeah. studio to do is because... He had a proven track record even by the early 60s because he had been making these like low budget poverty row kind of drive-in movies like, you know, Swamp Woman, Attack of the Crab Monsters, yeah. all that. And he'd been turning a profit on everything. Yeah. Like he, he boasts about this all the time that he like he used to say in the 80s, he'd be like, oh, I made, I've made like 100 movies and I've only lost money on three of them. Yeah. You know, like he he was he had that business sense. He knew what people wanted and he delivered it. And I think that's why 
AIP took a chance on him making these Poe adaptations because, you know, gothic horror like Poe is a very tenuous thing. Like, a lot of... It's very hard to find an audience for that kind of stuff, I feel. We did have Hammer at the time that were Yeah, like, well, yeah, it was probably a lot easier. Like, these days, those Poe adaptations probably wouldn't have flown quite as well. They fly like the witch. (laughs) But, But, I mean, they also... He also benefited from getting Vincent Price, if you ask me. Yeah. Because, you know, Vincent Price at that time... I mean, even when I was a kid. When I was a kid and Vincent Price was, like, past these, his heyday of the 60s and 70s, he was still active. You know, he was doing, like, voice work for, like, the hilarious House of Frightenstein. And, like, he t- he did the thriller thing, like, the narration in Michael Jackson's thriller. And you just knew his visage. Right. And you knew that he was, like... He was like a scary dude. So <laughs> I could see why these movies would be successful. And and you're right. He he took these budgets and he made movies that looked a lot more expensive than they were. Yeah. So, I mean, those those Poe movies are really definitely his first real coming out as, a, as being respected, I think. Well, yeah. And I mean, and the one that kind of sticks out in my mind that I've seen of those is Mask of the Red Death. Um, and this was actually shot by Nicholas Rogue, yeah. who went on to have his own career as a director. But I mean, I just remember it being kind of trippy and well, different. yeah, like I remember the ballroom dance scene, yeah, where Vincent Price has on the the red, he's got on like a red cloak, yeah, and the hat with the, like the feather in it, and he's got that skull mask on. Isn't that fan of the, or is that in this too? That's Masquerade Death too. Yeah, I just, and, I did, yeah, it's been a long time. I just remember a lot of color. Yeah, like a it's, lot a, of, it's a very vivid movie. Yeah, yeah, and it's they're very arty movies for the time too. Yeah, for like that budget range and you know that studio. Yeah, like AI, AIP and him had a really long lasting relationship, and it's because of these Poe movies. Yeah. Now another thing that Corman did at the time let, let was unique and that really sort of established him as a maverick was that you know he he really kind of had a pulse on what was going on in pop culture especially youth culture yeah and wasn't afraid to sort of do things in the way that he kind of thought that youth would want to see or that the the audience would want to see it like i talk a lot about this when i'm reviewing movies or talking about movies that you know, like you really need to make movies for the audience, not for yourself so much. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of filmmakers make. But it's one Corman rarely makes because he's always kind of there's been a few exceptions, but he's always kind of tried to sort of get a pulse on the audience and make movies for the audience. So, well, and for, he, yeah, and he's also attacked those subcultures like you talked about, like, you know, in the 60s, like 1966, he made The Wild Angels. Which uh, yeah, which touched on biker like biker culture, and the year after that there was the trip. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to get into, yeah. like because no one was making movies about LSD, no, no yeah. one was making movies about the Hell's Angels, and uh, but he he did. He wasn't afraid to go go there with these things, and he directed these movies, and uh, you know, famously with the trip, he took acid himself to like find out what it was like to take acid, and then made a movie about it, and. Uh, Again, launched the career of Peter Fonda with those two movies, and mm-hmm. um, but this was really different than what the studios were doing, you know. And, and um, but these movies again were wildly successful, successful flicks. Um, from there, he um, 
went on to go through um through the 70s with um with with um new horizons well i guess what or, we should, um, new world what pictures. should we talk about first is the fact that like um he had been directing these these pictures and he decided he wanted to take more of a producing role yes and he also wanted to kind of like trail his own path away from aip because i don't know if there was like they weren't quite getting along at the time or what the deal was i i'm i don't remember what the story is about it but I think he felt like he wanted to do his own thing separate from AIP as well. Right. And uh, he stopped directing movies in like, I think his last movie was 1971. Yeah, it was that one about the... That Baron yeah. and stuff one, which was like probably his... I think he be- he says that that's his most personal movie. Like that's the one that was the most interest to him because, you know, it was about like um, World War II fighter pilots. Right. And, you know, that's... It, I think it was one of actually his less less successful films that he made, but it was the one that was the most personal for him. Well, there's also The Intruder, which yeah, is another one. The we... Intruder with William Shatner, which was very um, racially motivated at the time and everything. Yeah. But uh, I feel like that that movie, because of he wanted to focus more on producing because it wasn't a huge success, is why he did step away from directing. Right. So before we move on to his producing days, let's just talk about his return to directing real quick, because um, I find it I found it weird that uh, in 1990, like 29 years after he directed his last movie, he was he was somehow 20th Century Fox actually pulled him out of retirement as a director to make Frankenstein Unbound. Right. Which is a weird take on the Mary Shelley thing, because it had like. The basis of the novel, you know, it had Raul Julia as, as Victor Frankenstein and, you know, it had the monster and everything, but it had this weird metaphysical like time warp element to the plot. And when I saw that movie originally, I could tell it was a Roger Corman movie. And, I, you know, it didn't feel like he hadn't directed a movie in like almost 30 years. Right. It was like he jumped back into it and, you know, it's not the most successful movie in the world, but... I could tell it was a Roger Corman movie when I watched it. Really? Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen it. So it's it's interesting. It's kind of it's not the most exciting movie in the world, but it takes that legendary Frankenstein tale in in a little bit of a different direction that it makes it at least worth seeing once. Hmm. So I just want to to polish off his directing before we move on to the New World days here. The New World. Yeah. So Corman was starting to get, yeah, like Chris said, he was starting to get um, get things going as a producer. I think he like helped produce Boxcar Bertha. That was one of yep. a, a big one. And then I think after Boxcar Bertha is when he formed New World Pictures um, and then started doing a bunch of... Well, it was uh, actually before that. It was uh, Boxcar Bertha 72 and he formed New World in 1970. So a couple of years before Boxcar Bertha. Okay. Yeah. I did a little bit of research. I got to tell. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, 1970, he started New World Pictures. And okay. uh, if you're in our age range, you know the New World Pictures logo. Yeah. You know the name. Um, I found out when I was looking into this that even though I'm very familiar with the New World stuff that he, Corman was responsible for, he did sell the company in 1983. And... I'm still familiar with New World because after that, there was a ton of movies still coming out under that 
under that studio's name that I remember the VHS boxes right. when I was a kid because they had this red kind of globy logo. Yeah. And you could always, I always would look for that in the corner of their video boxes. Yeah. I remember that for sure. Yeah, for sure. But uh, New World was was interesting because it was like a total company that was formed to make money. Yeah. Really like it was a B movie driving company, but uh so you know they were putting out like women in prison movies, like uh Big Dollhouse and Women in Cages and things like that and you know they were putting out Death Race 2000 and uh Piranha and you know Rock and Roll High School and things like that and he was making money over it, but but I mean at the same time he was New World put out a lot of foreign films that weren't getting released in North America. And I think, I think there was a thing where he, that studio had won the most yeah. best foreign picture Oscars in a short span of time. They won like four of them or something ridiculous like that in like a really short span of time yeah. because he had brought them over to North American shores. So it, it proves that he wasn't just a B movie shyster kind of Sam Sherman kind of deal like he actually did have a focus on bringing actual artistic films to mass audiences as well well it also showed that he just did what he wanted like well, he, exactly he, he loved foreign art house movies and so he's like well i want to get these distributed like, so, i don't bring these over what the hell yeah so why not yeah so there's so a he, lot of he yeah he did like he brought over some kurosawa movies yep. and bergman and Truffaut, i think so yeah, That's, he introduced a lot of those guys to the to the masses in America. Yeah, and uh, and New World, you know, they did a lot of really cool movies. Absolutely. Like yeah. But uh I find it interesting that even though he was doing all these cool movies, he still was taking time out to help launch people. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? The thing that they've dubbed Roger Corman's film school. Yeah, for sure. And we'll talk about <clears throat> just people who he's helped kickstart their careers and these are guys that that you know modern audiences are very familiar with absolutely so let's go through some of the names what what's one that you can think of i mean you talked about boxcar bertha right boxcar bertha so, so yeah martin scorsese martin scorsese you know one of the more you know storied and loved directors that's still working today yeah you know he made boxcar bertha in 1972 the year after he made that in 1973 he brought out mean streets yeah which is like a really good like really gritty crime movie you know and he's he's moved on from there to do you know like um, which corman was gonna produce was he gonna produce if scorsese did it as a black exploitation movie (laughs) (laughs) it's an entirely different movie so scorsese refused but i mean also coming from boxcar bertha was uh david carradine i mean that was the first uh movie that david carradine and corman worked together and of course they made a whole bunch of movies after that. Yeah, and a really early Barbara Hershey movie too. Yeah, because uh, at the time nobody really knew who she was. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's like Scorsese came from there. Um, one of the, but even before that, even in the '60s, before he had New World, he was like helping to launch people. Like you know, he made a movie called uh, Dementia Thirteen. Yeah, in 1963, that was directed by a guy called Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. Who obviously went on to make the Godfather movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are guys who he's giving really their first chance to make movies because he was willing to take that risk. You know, he was like, because he was 
constraining his budgets in a way, he wasn't afraid to give these filmmakers a chance. Right. And that's what makes Roger Corman be so important. You know, yeah. like he had all these people like, you know, even Jack Nicholson, really. You have to think he kind of gave Jack Nicholson his first big breaks too, like a little shop of horrors and, you know, well, there was the crybaby killer and, yeah, and um, the terror, like I mentioned before with Jack Nicholson, but Jack Nicholson also, Raven, yeah. also wrote movies for Roger Corman. He wrote yeah. a few movies and, you know, it's uh, Jack Hill who made Switchblade Sisters worked for Corman. He did some extra photography on the terror exactly. as did Coppola. It sounds lot, like, yeah, everyone lot, directed the, the terror. The terror was kind of a clusterfuck <laughs> of a movie. So it was like another one of those little shop of horror things where they like, we have the sets left over from these movies. We have three days and we have Boris Karloff. Let's make a movie. <laughs> yeah. And the movie made no sense. And it had so many different people shooting so much different footage that they just kind of spliced together at the end. Yeah. So there was those guys. Um, who else do we have? Well, Ron Howard comes to mind. Yeah, because um, Ron Howard was uh, from Andy Griffith's show. Yeah. Played Opie, which was Andy Griffith's son. But he was also, I think this was during Happy Days, he, he decided to start working uh, for Roger on some, uh, I like to call them car exploitation movies. <laughs> yeah. Because they're basically like car chase movies, you know, car crash movies. Kind of like what H.B. Halaki was doing with Gone in 60 Seconds and things like that. Kind of, yeah. Not only a little scale. bit more accessible. Yeah. Because it wasn't more, it wasn't like car porn like the Halaki movies. Yeah. You know, this one's actually tried for a plot and appeal to teenagers. Yeah. Ron Howard was in a movie called uh, Eat My Dust. He started in Eat My Dust. Yeah, he started in Eat My Dust, which was like, you know, he was like a rebellious teenager who like him and his girlfriend go on a joyride and yeah. tell the law to eat their dust. Yeah. I remember that from the trailer. <laughs> and then it's so, an all right movie. Yeah. So they kind of wanted Roger kind of wanted to make a spiritual successful like successor that like a sequel or whatever. And uh, Ron Howard was like, oh, I, I kind of want to try directing. Right. So he kind of said to said to roger like why don't you give me a chance directing yeah you know and he let him do grand theft auto yeah guy had no experience really directing but he had been like familiar with movie sets and everything because he'd been acting for a long time so roger's like why not right and now ron howard's gone on to this big film career you know he apollo 13 and he's a good director beautiful mind cinderella man like the guy's moved beyond acting and now has become like a very well-respected director and and you know he might not have become that if Roger Corman didn't give him that chance. I was actually really happy to find out that Ron Howard's still pretty young. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, he just starts to, we're losing so many people these days. But. Yeah, and um, another guy who we should mention is uh, Monty Hellman, who made Tulane Blacktop. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of people know who Monty well, Hellman is. He's, <laughs> he's kind of he's kind of well-respected in kind of the film. yeah. Like the film scholarly world or whatever, but he made a movie f- with Warren Oates for Roger Corman called Cockfighter, yeah, which is about like you know cockfighting, which is you know kind of like a redneck sport in a way because it's just roost- people bet on roosters fighting each other to the death, and it's a bizarre. Isn't that the movie where there's like no dialogue or something? Yeah, I'm not sure what the exact thing is, but he made that, and he also made Beast from the Haunted Cave, which is right. like a really earlier, like yeah. a late fifties. Um, monster movie too. So he helped launch Monty Hellman, who I know a lot of you might not know him, but <laughs> yeah. Tulane Blacktop is awesome and you should see it. Yeah. Yeah. Monty Hellman's a pretty obscure uh, reference. Um, yeah. We've talked about Scorsese. We've, um, 
I mean, Peter Bogdanovich yeah, um, made uh, targets with Boris Karloff. Yeah, and the last picture show. Yeah. Um, targets was a Corman production. Was it? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so Targets is a really cool movie about like an aging B-movie horror star played by Boris Karloff. Yeah. Who's like having this like premiere of his movie at like this drive-in or whatever. And there's a a guy who's like kind of got mental issues who's like with a sniper rifle. Right. It's a really like, it's a pretty good movie. Like it's a very underrated movie. But Bogdanovich is mostly known for uh, Last Picture Show and things like that. Yeah. Um, another big one is um, Joe Dante. Yep. And Alan Arkish, but again, most people aren't going to know who Alan Arkish well, is. But everyone unfortunately, knows. I know Alan Arkish also was involved with Caddyshack too, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. So we can forgive him for that because he helped us. He Hollywood Boulevard. Him and Joe Dante yeah. made Hollywood Boulevard, and 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 the thing I found out about Joe Dante, which I think is cool, is that like a guy like Jim Wynorski did in the future. Joe Dante started out as a trailer cutter. Right. For Roger. For Roger Corman. So he was like, you know, cutting these trailers and they were kind of boring. And, you know, there's a famous story Roger tells about Joe Dante where he's like, we need to make this trailer more exciting. What can you do for me? And and Joe Dante's like, well, just give me, give me the afternoon and I'll come back to you later. And I guess in the middle of this trailer, he cut in a helicopter exploding. Really? And Roger's like, that's pretty awesome. Is that in the movie? He's like, no, does it matter? (laughs) <laughs> so that started the trend of Rogers movies having like stuff that wasn't related to the movie you're seeing cut right. into the trailers to make them more exciting. And also um, Joe Dante does now does uh, trailers from hell. Right. Yes. So that's cool because he started out as a trailer cutter. Yeah. He made Hollywood Boulevard and Piranha for Roger. He's also gone on to other movies like Inner Space and things like that. But he does this trailers from hell, which I find is a full circle because he started out cutting trailers and it's a cool site that does commentary on trailers by directors and film critics yeah. and actors and things like that. And um Did you just offhandedly say Joe Dante's done other things, you know, like inner space. You know, and like stuff. inner space. <laughs> For me it's always gonna be piranha. No. Joe Dante's done a lot of really good Gremlins. Movies. Yeah, Gremlins. I Gremlins is is, you know, one of my favorites, obviously. Yeah, the Howling. So yeah, Joe Dante's done a lot more than that little movie called I Inner know. Space. <laughs> but the the funny story about Hollywood Boulevard is that uh he him and Alan Arkish went up to Roger and, and said, you know, we can make a movie in this many days for this much money. And he's like, you're on. Yeah. And then they went and did it. <laughs> so, yeah, you wouldn't see stuff like that happening these days. Well, and the other fun thing about Hollywood Boulevard is it's like trying to spot all the other Corman movies. That yeah. Are in they there. just spliced in all it's this. like, Oh, there's death race 2000. <laughs> all yeah. of a sudden the cars are death race 2000. That movie needs a Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. It's a great, it's a great movie. I love that movie. I love Candace Rialson and, uh, wish she was still with us, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a. Uh, Probably one of my favorites of the New World times, that's for sure. So Seen another another guy from that era, too, is uh, Jonathan Demme. Yep. Who made uh, Cage Teat. Yep. Angels as Hard as They Come, which is a really cool biker movie. And uh, he went on to make one of my favorite 80s movies, Something Wild. Right. With uh, Melanie Griffith, J- Jeff Daniels, and Ray Liotta. But he also won an Academy Award for Silence of the Lambs. Yep. He made Married to the Mob. He's made a lot of really good movies, too. And he started out with Roger Corman. Yep. Um, 
Who else have we got here? George Armitage. That's kind of more of an obscure one. Yeah, that's an obscure one. In a way, but <laughs> he made Gas and Private Duty Nurses. Cause there was well, didn't Corman, pr- directed, Corman directed Gas? Yeah, he wrote it. He wrote Gas. Okay. And he directed Private Duty Nurses. Yeah. But he went on to make, um, what's the movie everyone's going to know by him? Miami Blues with Alec Baldwin, which is a really cool movie. <laughs> everyone's going to know. I love everyone's Miami Everyone's going to know that no, one. Well, <laughs> shut up. I really like that. He made um, Gross Point Blank with John Cusack. Yeah. Yeah. So there. Yeah. Who else we got? Anyone um, well, else? John Sales wrote Piranha. Yep. John Sales um, became a, quite a famous screenwriter. Um. We also have James Cameron. Yeah, he did on, uh, uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. Yeah, he did special effects and stuff. And I believe Roger actually had. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think he had something to do with Piranha Two as well because I was he J- directed it. James Cameron directed it, but I think Roger might have produced it, or I'm not sure what the story is behind Piranha Two. But uh, you know, James Cameron has made the two highest-grossing movies of all time, yeah, with Titanic and Avatar. And this is a guy who started out making a spaceship set using egg cartons for Roger. So yeah, pretty pretty big feat. Even though James Cameron is a bit of a douche nowadays, to be honest with you. Well, I'm not looking forward to Avatar. I'd never two, seen Avatar, and, and I never four. will. But the guy made Aliens and Terminator and. You know, he made some pretty good movies when yeah. he started out. So I'm not going to discount those. <laughs> I can't discount those just because of Avatar and his bad attitude. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. I just wish he would uh, realize like the I craft. I wish he'd get less of... full of himself and, and go back to what he started out doing, which was making movies. Well, the craft of making movies. Yeah. Is kind of That's where I feel like James Cameron's really kind of lost his way. Like... It's like, you know, especially when, you know, he come when he came from working with Roger Corman, you know, like the whole craft of making movies, I think, is what made all these guys love it so much. And it, I think it shines through in the in the picture Well, because you learn so much on one of his one of yeah. his productions because you didn't have a lot of money you had to improvise. You had to learn on the fly. You had to, you know, that's what that's real film making school for them. Like, yeah. You know, sitting in front of a computer. Yeah, with, I just don't understand. With your actors like who have been standing in front of a green screen, that's not really film school. That's, I know, it's kind of like making an animated movie or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like like Inside Out, right? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to go there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why don't we talk about... So uh, Corbin wrapped up New World Pictures um, in the late 70s, I believe. 83. He or, sold it in 83. Okay, well, I'm glad you got your dates right. Yeah, I, at least I did that. Yeah, because those are those are super important. Um, <laughs> and you're a super asshole. <laughs> All right. So after he wrapped up um, New World, he decided to um, form a uh, new company. It's called uh, uh, well, Concord Pictures and New Horizons. Well, it was there was Concord, then there was New Concord, and then there was New Horizons. Right. So they yeah. these were kind of like kind of I thought they were kind of like interchangeable in the yeah in you, the video boom. Yeah, they kind of like all flow together for me. Yeah. So there was some good good stuff though back then. Like again, he he was giving other people shots. There, I mean, there might not have been as important as he was doing in the seventies. You know, like. He let Andrew Stevens direct a few movies, you know. <laughs> he introduced us to Don the Dragon Wilson. 
there you is know? so much stuff that I watched when I was a oh, kid. Well, think about it. Look, look at what I wrote down, okay? I'll go over the titles I wrote down that were, were Concord New Horizons stuff. You know, you've got like Slumber Party Massacre, you know? Yeah. One of my favorite 80s slasher movies. And like when you dive into that movie and find out it was like written by a feminist and directed by a woman and it's still like a total exploitation drive-in slasher <laughs> movie, you're just like, it blows your mind. Oh, yeah. Um, Suburbia. So I love he, that movie. He gives yeah. Penelope Spears a chance to make this like movie about like basically homeless Los Angeles punk rockers. Yeah. You know, and it's it's a very counterculture oh, yeah. kind of movie. You know, we've got the Death Stalker series. Like this is the the Concord New Horizon time was when he was like at his best at, at riffing on other popular movies. Oh, you the know? Concord New Horizons time, man. I like just worship. Like, this you know, thing. Death Stalker, Strip to Kill, Blood Fist, Terror Within, you know, not to mention my absolute favorite moments of the uh Concord New Horizons was Whenever he needed something done and he needed it to be like ripped off and done really quick and really cheap, he'd call up the Philippines and call up a guy called Serio H. Santiago and be like, hey, how about you make me a movie that's kind of like similar to Full Metal Jacket? We'll call it Eye of the Eagle. How about you make me a Road Warrior ripoff called Striker? You know? Yeah. Fucking love Serio H. Santiago. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about him in the past. I love him. But him and Roger, man, they made like. 60 movies together did they really it was a it's a ridiculous number dude wow i have no idea maybe not 60 maybe that's overextending it but it's it's like in between 30 and 60 movies they made together they made a lot of movies together really yeah like a lot but you know you're you know that like it's the same thing like with new horizons and stuff we we would see that logo on the spine right yeah and we would rent it Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you've got your, like I said, Strip to Kill, which were great, like, kind of... Strip to Kill, Strip Teasers, Showgirl yeah. Murders. Oh, yeah, the stripper subgenre was a favorite Man. of mine. Angel Fist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep, and, um, yeah, I mean, he made a, you know, made a lot of these... Uh, yes, a lot of these Scream Queens and, like, some of these guys, like Jim Wynorski, got their yep. starts through this area, this um, company... And yeah, it was just sort of like the video store shelves, especially in the sections I liked, were just populated with these kind of movies. And, you know, this is probably what this got me more into Roger Corman than the New World stuff, frankly. Well, it did when for I me, too. Young. Yeah. But I've gone back now and I can totally I totally love all the 70s stuff, too. Right. Oh, absolutely. But this is the stuff that that really got me into Roger Corman. Well, yeah. And, Chopping Mall. It was always and, like Roger Corman presents yeah. and all that stuff. And. There was just so much stuff, man. And, I mean, we could just go on and on and on and on and on. But, um, yeah, there's just – go look up his filmography on IMDb and uh, – <laughs> Have fun with that because be it's like 300-plus movies. Well, that's just – I'm just looking at the producer credits, and it's 409 as wow. of today. Yeah. So that's that's just the producer credits. This isn't counting the stuff he directed and um, stuff he's helped out with as well. So it's it's completely staggering. Um, you know, and you look like, you know, you look at guys like Charles Band and you can see where he got his inspiration from, obviously, because he's kind of followed a similar path, but like the poor man's version. He's the poor man's Roger Corman. Is no, that but what I mean, Charles Band started like three companies, you know, he yeah. started Empire and then shut that down and then went to Full Moon, kind of like Roger did with New World and went to New Horizons. 
Um, you know, a lot of a lot of up and coming filmmakers have gone through Charles Band as well. Yep. But maybe not to the same well, obviously not to the same level of success as as James Cameron and Jonathan Demi, but I mean they have gone through that that thing. But I mean it's I mean Dave just... Dakotu hasn't directed like one of uh, like a box office smash. <laughs> it don't riff on David. I'm not. He made Creepazoids and Sorority Babes and the Slime Ball Bowlerama. Yeah, he's done nothing. Instant wrong. pass. Nightmare nothing. Sisters. <laughs> Instant pass. He's. Done, I'd like to get him on the show one day. So. Yeah. Hey, Dave, if you're listening, <laughs> you give us a give us a give us a call. <laughs> um. Yeah. So. Um. This is about Roger. This is about Roger. So I and I, I like. I mean, I'm enough of a, I'm such a huge Roger Corman fan. I actually, and we've talked about this before. I actually flew to LA last year yep. just so I could have the opportunity to shake the guy's hand and get a, um, get him to sign something for me and get a photo with him. So, I mean, um, and I don't think there's very many people I would do that for. And, and when Josh says get something signed, he, he's talking about Death Race 2000. <laughs> I got my Death Race 2000 VHS signed, yeah. <laughs> but I also have a poster signed that uh, Charles Band actually helped hook me up with um, of him and Roger Corman together. So um, that's prime, in a prime location in my place right now. So. And it's, it's one of the coolest things he has in his place, I yeah. got to admit. Yeah. For a guy like me, I'm like... You know, I grew up with Charles Band just as much as Roger Corman, so to have those two give you something that a lot of people who were at that event didn't get, yeah, is pretty damn yeah sweet. So that's definitely one of the highlights in my like celebrity meeting life. Um, you know, I've met a number of people, but I mean, yeah, this is like the pinnacle for sure. The thing I I find great about Roger is that he always just seems so grounded, right? Like. He just seems to be like kind of chilled out and go with the flow. And, and, you know, he, he always just, he just wants to make movies. He doesn't seem to be like one of those typical, like studio exec types. That's always like, I mean, obviously he watches what he's doing and makes sure that people aren't doing things they're not supposed to, but I mean, he's got to be doing something right. Cause he has, for all these people to have come up through his ranks and respect him and, and, you know, adore the guy. He's been doing something right. The guy's been in the business 60 years. Well, from what I've heard about when people talk, you know, because everyone talks about this guy, like everyone from like, you know, the people we've mentioned to like, you know, like Fred Olin Ray and Jim Wynorski and all those those cats as well. Um, but I mean, I th- I think the one thing like that I've heard quite a bit is like, you know, with like Ron Howard or whoever, like when, when he's... Roger Corman seems to have a a talent for being able to identify whether or not someone has talent and whether whether or not that person can handle doing a particular job. So when I think what what happened a lot of the time is Roger Corman would be like, "Hey Joe Dante and Alan Arkish, sure, go make the movie." And if he said go make the movie, that meant he believed in you, but then he just let you go make the movie and let you figure it out for yourself and it wasn't like hand-holding and, and micromanaging you all the time. You know, he might come, might give you notes, but he was trusting... When he made a decision to do that, he was trusting that you knew what you were doing. And that probably made these guys learn very quickly and learn how to solve problems by themselves instead of having someone do it for them. And I think he was kind of a master at being able to recognize talent like that. Well, and I got to say that if it wasn't for him, 
I highly doubt I'd be into B movies as much as I am today. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be doing this podcast. Yeah, like if it wasn't for him, B movies probably wouldn't exist in the form they exist in now. The whole film industry would be different if it wasn't for him. Yeah, the it's guy totally. And you know, I know we sound like total fanboys, but that is a. I think that's a completely accurate statement. It, it, he changed everything. Yeah, I'm and, not. Gonna, uh, I'm not arguing. It's quite quite emotional actually like how much of an impact guys had so i'm glad we were able to do an episode about them um but yeah that's it that's all i gotta say about him that he's a living legend yeah and he deserves that status yeah and uh if you want to go on to his imdb like josh said there's so many good movies he's been involved with and so many gems to watch Oh, and I'd absolutely recommend a documentary about Roger Corman called Corman's World that yep. came out in 2011, I believe. Yep. But um, it's fairly easy to get, but um, it's very good. It's It's got interviews with a lot of the people we've talked about. Like, uh, yeah, like, you know, these big... Uh, Jack Nicholson's prominent in the... in the. Yeah, Jack Nicholson was quite touching in that movie, actually. But uh, Yeah, Jack Nicholson gets really choked up about it. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's a guy who you always had this impression impression that he was just like kind of a hard ass yeah with like this this exterior like this really hard exterior and to see him get emotional about a, a man yeah like like Roger Corman is is quite touching yeah check out that movie for sure like and uh another one is he wrote a book in 1990 called How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Didn't Lose a Dime yeah that's pretty essential reading it's a really great book and uh, there was a... I'm trying to look up... Keep talking. I'm trying to look up another book here. Sorry, forgive me. Is that me. the one like Hollywood's Rebel or something like that? Uh, no. There is, um, there is a Roger Corman coffee table book. Oh, okay. That actually came out last year or the year before. I'm just trying to find out what it's called for you because it's... I've looked at this book in the store and it's a great... It looks like a great... Um, Coffee table size retrospective of his career, and it's uh, it's called Crab Monsters, Teenage Caveman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Candy Stripe Nurses. Yeah. Oh, and, we forgot about the nurse movies. Yeah, I <laughs> briefly mentioned them, but it looks pretty great. So uh, there's a lot of resources out there if you want to learn about him. And uh, yeah, you got yeah. lots of movies to watch if you're not familiar with them. Oh, and, I've uh, got lots of movies to watch, yeah. and I am familiar with them. So. Man, I I like. You just said the nurses collection, and I'm just like, I gotta buy that uh, that DVD oh, collection. Set, and yeah. uh, Candice Rielsen's in Candice Street Nurses too. Oh well, then you're sold on that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, I guess what we're trying to say here is that out of all the people that we're probably going to cover in the lifetime of this podcast, I'm pretty sure nobody's going to be as important. No, as Roger is. No, and uh, for that, we're always going to love the guy. The guy shaped who we were as as b-movie fans and uh you know as movie fans not as just movie fans, fans yeah. too yeah you just you can't take that away from the guy yeah so yeah so thanks roger yeah all right and with that uh we're out of here so if you want to want to hear more about us uh go to um www.thevideograveyard.com slash gbw podcast perfecto all right thanks again roger